welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop to learn everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it that we know about so far. <laughs> I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. This is the show where we read books of academic game studies, and uh, we talk about them and hopefully make them useful, understandable, interesting. Oh, so, today, Michael, mm-hmm. we're doing something fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we set out for the first time since the beginning of this podcast, we created a list of books that we we're going to read in order more than 45 days out from recording the episode, <laughs> which is, a uh, uh, you know, that's just not something that we've been uh, on the ball about necessarily, but we did that earlier this year and, uh, we put a bunch of things in and, uh, you know, some were thematically aligned, some we thought would fit together. And I said, look, I want to do Colin Milburn's Mondo Nano. Fun and games in the world of digital matter because it's weird. Mm-hmm. And you said, okay. Mm-hmm. I like weird. Mm-hmm. So that's the book that we're doing that we're talking about today. We're talking about Colin Milburn's Mondo Nano, colon, fun and games in the world of digital matter. And, uh, what, you know, let's just get your, before we go through, you know, who Colin Milburn is, where this book came from, any of that kind of stuff. Do you think this book? is weird uh yes it is weird it's it's an incredibly weird book uh for reasons that we'll probably get into um the other thing that i think you said to me when you were like hey let's read this uh you said something like well you said like this is a michael lutz's hell book uh or something along those lines right you you specifically framed this this volume in terms that suggested it would be relevant or or somehow evocative to or for me Mm -hmm. um and you were correct. Like, this is the most Michael book that I think we've read on this show. Um, like, even more so than something like uh, Gina Bloom's Gaming the Stage. Uh, because while this does not have specifically, uh, like, my uh, field interests at the center, um, this is a book that re Like, this book tends to build arguments in the ways that I build arguments, um, which is like a, a very strange thing to see <laughs> like mm-hmm. to recognize that kind of happening uh in someone else right like that's not to say that uh, uh milburn and i are equivalent thinkers but i think like our our argumentative imaginations operate in similar ways and so i often feel like i'm uh when i'm writing i'm like man people are going to think i'm nuts and it feels like milburn was also writing this book thinking people are going to think i'm nuts and also i do not care uh well you know what uh colin milburn if you're listening let us know when you were writing it did you feel like "Uh (laughs) uh-oh what am i doing but but uh why do you say that michael why do you uh not the not the um the uh uh-oh part but the uh uh how is the argument getting built in a big broad sense here um so uh a like one of the kind of hallmarks of milburn's method throughout this book um is to read laterally is how I would describe it rather than drilling down. So in an academic argument, um, there is a way where you can start kind of like 
uh, you know, in in the year 1650, so-and-so was walking down the street, court records tell us, and uh, had an altercation with so-and-so. And and you can sort of like, so this is one way of starting a, an academic argument is you sort of like have this broad kind of uh, historical or sort of like case study. Uh, and then you're like, well, what does this tell us about society in this time? Well, we notice in the court records that this particular phrase or word or idea keeps showing up. Uh, and so we're going to kind of drill down on that. And try to understand, well, what did this mean in the 17th century? And we're, we're going to look at sort of other texts uh, from kind of the same time period or a little bit uh, earlier or after and kind of historicize that meaning and, and recover that uh, kind of understanding, right? Um, that is sort of one way into an academic argument. And one of the things that Milburn will do uh, that is real. You'll notice that I, I framed this as a historical argument, right? I'm going to sort of act like uh, the 17th century is this thing that we can excavate somehow through archival research by being, paying close attention to to language, uh, to to public discourse, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, Milburn does this for right now, right? He he writes about the present in the way that a historicist scholar writes about the past. Uh, which is to say uh, he mixes kind of uh, knowledge domains in really interesting ways. If you're doing historicist research, it's like kind of fair game for you to move from like court records to uh, published sermons to uh, what were the broadsides, right? Whatever broadsides are still around. Um, what was poetry at the time writing about these ideas? Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, if you read anything in early modern uh, studies or Shakespeare studies, you're going to see a lot of scholarship uh, that is talking about something very specific and sort of civic like law institutions, but also uh, reading sonnet cycles, right? That talk about justice and sort of noticing how like the, the imaginary of justice uh, straddles kind of both civic and artistic domains. Um, and Milburn is doing the exact same thing, uh, except he is doing it for contemporary culture, like looking at how, like just broad strokes, what is this book doing? It is looking at how the, the language of nanotechnology, how the rhetoric of nanotechnology uh, shows up not only in actual nanotechnology science, right, but also in video games, but then also how language from video games about nanotechnology cycles back into scientific domains and influences how nanotechnology researchers are thinking about their own process, right? So uh, this really interesting kind of uh, willful uh, blurring of boundaries in pursuit of uh, the, the sort of academic object of study here. Yeah, the uh, you, the way that that I would put it, right, uh, which is just repeating what you're saying, but in different languages, right, is it's kind of a full spectrum view, right? You know, th that historical research that you're talking about, you know, it, it, those scholars, I don't do this research, tell me if I'm wrong, but those scholars do that in order to say that in all of these domains, you can see the kind of symptoms of that time. And if you look at it all together, right, if you kind of collage it, then you can get a picture of, you know, what the time period looks like. Um, and so, yeah, Milburn is doing that and has no, no there, there's no disciplinary boundary, right, for him. Um, and, and that has to do, I mean, you know, I have a similar vibe coming out of media studies. You know, there's just no, it's all media, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's all kind of figures that move around. And I think it's important to note that the two big kind of, I don't know, theory people or philosophy people, kind of depending on your angle, and the way you think about these things, the, the two figures who really show up the most are uh, Gilles Deleuze and Jacques Derrida. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think importantly, Milburn is not trying to do a thing where he like staples those two figures together um, and like makes them, you know, coherent within this thing because that's very difficult to do and it's a big kind of capital P philosophical operation. Um, but he he takes the same kind of tech that those thinkers do in the sense that, you know, for... For Deleuze, you could watch things. You could watch kind of image regimes, uh, images of thought is uh, you know what what he what Deleuze called it. You could watch those and trace them and kind of genealogically follow them um, across uh, media in particular, right? So famously, Deleuze's cinema books are about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we're seeing kind of um, uh, what you're, exactly what you're talking about, nanotechnology, right? Not just as a language, although I think you're right that that language itself is really important here and the kind of framing devices of it are important. It's not just language, but as a kind of orienting figure, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of bounces around as like this thing that we pay attention to that comes with some kind of like rules with it, right? And that's the Mm -hmm. kind of mono-nano thing that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, He's also very Deridian, and I'll talk about this toward the end too, but he's also very Deridian in that he will kind of exhaust the wordplay of something, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Milburn several several times in this book will, especially around the term speculation, right? Mm-hmm. Will throw out the word speculation and be like, "Well, speculation means this in this scenario, but if we look at it from this other angle, it means this, and if it looks and we look at it from here, it means this, right?" He kind of you know pulls at every thread mm-hmm. in, in particular kind of uh, figures to to point out all the different kind of modes of relation and that those modes don't have any kind of meaning outside of their relationality. You know, he's, he's, um, you know, it's very, uh, there's a reason that structure sign and play is, is uh, quoted at the very end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole book kind of feels like an elaboration or a riff on what would it mean for play, Doridian play to be like applied to a particular field. Um, we don't have to get super hyper deep into that or anything, but you know, if you are someone who thinks that Derrida in game studies is really interesting and, and and Derrida is a kind of absent figure, this is a book that's worth looking at, I think, through that lens, because I think it would deliver a lot um, mm-hmm. if you're looking at it from from there. Um yeah, and that's sort of when I said that this feels a little bit like how I would construct an argument. That's one of the key things that I sort of recognize in myself is like that is that is what I love to do is that Deridian move of being like, well, I'm going to like basically make an argument out of a pun, <laughs> right? The fact that this word can like activate in two different ways, uh, because that's the sort of thing that ends up being interesting to me is seeing how like one one concept can become differentiated but at the same time it can never separate from kind of its others right so it's a, it's a really interesting uh book uh for game studies for that reason as you say because we don't see a whole lot of that Ugh, you disgusting deridian early modernists mm-hmm. <laughs> um what do, do you want to i know that you've collected the biographical information before we hop into the book proper uh you want to you want to lay that out for us Yeah, sure. So uh, this book, Mondo Nano by Colin Milburn, was published by Duke University Press in 2015. Uh, It is part of a series, the title of which I forgot to write down here. It's called like uh, uh, Experimental Futures is the series. Mm -hmm. Um, Milburn himself is a professor in the Department of English at UC Davis and the Gary Snyder Chair in the Science and the Humanities. Uh, 
Interestingly enough, I already mentioned Gina Bloom and Gaming the Stage. She is also in the English department at UC Davis. So uh, if there's some sort of like resonance between these two projects, that might be some of the reason they're colleagues. Uh, Milburn is also the author of NanoVision, uh, Engineering the Future from 2008. Uh, this seems like it's one of those kind of like photo books or coffee table books that has some of the material here that uh, gets like what we have here is like a later version of some of this earlier research. Um, and then more recently, uh, in 2018, the book Respawn, Gamers, Hackers, and Technogenic Life. Yep. Which I've also read. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's good. Uh, if you, if you read this book and like it, or you hear us talk about it and you're looking for something in a similar zone, you should just read Respawn. Respawn almost feels like a direct sequel to this book. Mm. Um, and, uh, I don't mean that in any kind of negative way. It, it is the continuation of a really interesting project. And he's a little bit more interested in the kind of social aspect of some of these ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, it feels like it's tracking, um, it, it is tracking kind of um, digital, uh, uh, the interaction with digital space, maybe is the best way of putting it, across mm -hmm. a lot of different domains. So it's not exactly about uh, nanotech in the same way, but it's the same method. It's applied to games and games culture again. Um, uh, it's worth, worth, worth checking out. It's about half the length of, the length of this book, I think. So um, if, if uh, Mondo Nano sounds really exciting to you, but you don't think you've got oh, 400 pages of time in your life, then Respawn might be a little bit more your speed to work up for uh, Mondo Nano. Because hmm. this book's pretty long. It is. It's a pretty long book. It's got, uh, what, six chapters? Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't know. They're all in binary code. I was going to say the chapters are numbered in binary, which also tells you exactly kind of like what this book is like. At this point, I do want to write uh, some sort of piece that's about the ways that game studies scholars choose to orient or to, to organize their books. There's something say, going on there. Yeah, we have like a binary chapter numbering. Um, uh, there's a. Uh, uh, Oh gosh, uh, Tara Fickle had the dice thing in yep. in race card. Interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like here's our meta move, right? Start looking at the ways that game studies books organize their topics. Mm -hmm. um, very interested in it. Um, yeah, this thing kind of just digs right into it. Mm -hmm. I mean the 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 sort of the big structure of the book is not a progressional argument. Sometimes we cover books that are progressional and that sort of each thing builds on what came before. Um, but this is uh, kind of like taking a, a set of central interrelated concerns and then sort of extruding them in different directions kind of based on, you know, I don't know what what sort of objects that Milburn has found that seem to be speaking to these questions. Um, so we'll probably talk about some chapters more than others, if only because some like there are some chapters in this book that are straight up just talking extensively about uh, experiments in nanotechnology labs, which are super interesting to read about, but not necessarily things that Cameron and I are qualified to talk about with any sort of like clarity or insight. <laughs> Yeah, or I mean, we would just be repeating what's in the book, so <laughs> that's not uh, probably not particularly helpful. I, I organizationally, this book is um, I have no confirmation, so this is just pure speculation. You know, I haven't haven't read this anywhere. I haven't haven't uh, spoken to Colin Milburn about it. This is patterned after a thousand plateaus. I think it feels um, like it. Yeah, and the reason I say that is that it feels like you could read these in any order. 
they have quite a bit of repeating information in them. So if you notice uh, across lots of the chapters, there's the repeated anecdote about uh, Feynman and mm-hmm. inventing nanotech. Um, you know, in, in with the speech, there's plenty of room at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it, it's written in a very similar way that you could pull out any of these chapters and read them individually. You could probably read it in any given order. And also, we get to a chapter at the end. I don't remember which one it is. It's the one where they are maybe nanopolitan. No, no, no. Uh, My Little Avatar, mm-hmm. uh, the chapter toward the end that is written almost exactly the same way as the Professor Challenger chapters uh, mm-hmm. in the story of the, the story of whatever figure chapters in A Thousand Plateaus. So, um, I, I it's it's a. a what I really like about it is that it feels patterned off of that, and I can see a lot of connections to it, but that is never signaled anywhere. You know, that's not in the intro to, like, justify anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I got the, part of the reason I bring that up is that um, if you hear us talking about this and you think, oh, this one chapter sounds really interesting, I just want to read that one chapter of this book, you could do that and probably not be lost in any way. Every chapter is pretty good about giving you all the pieces you need to understand how to walk through it. That's not always the case. Um, but that is certainly the case here, which I think is uh, both a challenge to do and also contributes to the length of the book a little bit. I, I think mm-hmm. there's quite a bit of kind of repeated scene setting to make sure that you can excerpt chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of of two minds about that. On one mind, uh, on one hand, great for readership. On the other hand, not great to sit and read it all in one whack. You know, yeah, over the course no, of a man. few days. Um, <laughs> A lot of repeated, a lot of me being like, all right, yeah, Feynman, fine, whatever. Yep, yeah, it's great. Richard Feynman <laughs> made a joke. <laughs> yep, it's funny. I get it. Okay. Uh, but yeah, what do you what do you think about uh, A Boy and His Atom? This is the very beginning of the introduction, press start, uh, made in 2013. It's a little bitty, uh, a little bitty story, a little cartoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little cartoon made by an IBM lab with, um, I think, carbon atoms, or maybe it was a, a couple types of atom. Anyway, it's like a little uh, animation, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's like a like a, it's like a little stick figure guy, and he gets a a pet atom, and you know, it, it's very short. Uh, you can look this up online. Uh, and as uh, Milburn says, wait, this is on page two, quote, the film presents an allegory of t- techno scientific innovation depicting the manipulation of atoms as a childlike process of speculation and play, fun and games. Uh, and here he is making and this is sort of indicative of kind of overall what this book is doing, right? He is not just talking about like what this little cartoon shows, which is a you know, stick figure boy playing with uh, uh, an atom that is sort of like anthropomorphized as if it were like a little dog kind of creature. Um, but also like, what is this thing as an object? It looks like a children's drawing and it is presented as this kind of groundbreaking uh, kind of scientific achievement. And it is right. The fact that they made this animation with individual atoms is incredible but also the the thing that they have produced uh is a short little cartoon about a kid who jumps on a trampoline and then like rockets into the sky or something uh mm-hmm. and so there's this weird pull between uh kind of the scientific endeavor on the one hand or what what might seem i should say what might seem like a a, a disjunction right the pull of a, a serious scientific endeavor on one hand and sort of the uh 
weird, playful, like, oh, I'm just noodling around with uh, whatever technology we have in the lab kind of uh, attitude. And one of the things that Milburn is going to come back to again and again and again, especially in the case of nanotechnology, is that these attitudes are becoming increasingly intertwined and in fact have maybe always been intertwined, intertwined and are independent or interdependent. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, weirdly enough, I guess we didn't say this a little bit earlier, right? But, uh, you know, obviously, this is a book about nanotechnology. And the question is, well, how is this a game studies book, right? Like, mm-hmm. why have we why have we chosen to, to read it? And it's for exactly those reasons you just talked about, right? You know, Milburn is drawing a line of connection, or is just saying these are all the same thing, right? That Mm -hmm. the kind of uh, play instinct in a broad sense, right? In the way that that gets talked about across a billion different, basically anyone who talks about play, right? This is kind of um, generative activity. Very James S. Hansi, actually, Mm -hmm. by the the way, although Hans doesn't show up here, as far as I know, Um, might be in a footnote somewhere. But uh, so so play is generative. Uh, Play is... uh, intertwined with speculation right mm-hmm. so any kind of kind of thinking about the way the world is or could be play is is a part of that and uh also that the kind of dividing lines between science and speculation in play is very blurry mm-hmm. you know we have a fantasy that science is kind of rationalist you know moves forward steadily with very serious experiments um, but over and over again, what Milburn is talking about in the examples in this book is that science is science moves. I don't even want to say progresses, right? But science moves and changes around play very often and the products that it produces in order to justify itself as a project. You know, mm-hmm. science as a mode of engaging with the world are often playful in their very nature. And they're mm-hmm. gamey and they're silly and they're goofy. And our technologies of games and our technologies of science and the way that those things get visualized and all the different things that you were talking about before that they're kind of uh, codependent on one another, those are all happening all at once. It's not as if play happens and then science happens, and it's not as if science affords play. Both are are kind of um, Mm co-evolutionary and moving at the same time. And so that's, that's why I think this is such a fascinating, well, on both sides. I think that is why this is such a fascinating book and why I am so, um, you know, uh, just enamored with it. I think it's such a great book and also why I myself wrote a book on speculation and playing games, right? I mm-hmm. think it has a lot to do with reading Colin Milburn's work. Um, but uh, on, the other, on the other hand, I think there, that's part of the reason why this has not been taken up, I think, broadly in game studies. I, mm-hmm. I think that if you read game studies books and, you know, spoilers, but we read a lot of game studies books here on the show, it's not like Colin Milburn's showing up on every page. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly I don't think, like, you know, we say this every other episode, but, um, you know, this book I don't think is, unfortunately, taken as seriously <laughs> as it needs to be because it's quite playful. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it doesn't provide clean and clear definitions for many of its, of its kind of objects. Um, so anyway, that is my long, um, uh, empathetic yet, um, uh, encouraging suggestion that there's some weird outlier books in game studies. And I think it would be better if they were at the core of our discipline rather than, uh, at the periphery. Well, Cameron, what do you <laughs> think about chapter one? uh oh okay can i read one more thing from the introduction oh, okay sure sorry 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 uh uh michael well, michael what is mondo nano 
<laughs> uh, Mondo, Na Mondo Nano is uh, the dream of a completely programmable world uh, that is already being made into lived experience and everyday reality, not only in the scientific lab. By the way, part of that was a, a, a direct quote from Milburn. I didn't flag it very well. I'm very sorry. This is from page six. Uh, but uh, it, it's being made a reality uh, through the scientific lab, uh, but also through kind of our, our popular cultural production. Um, and this is going to be very important for Milburn and for this book uh, kind of moving forward, right? I would, the, the way that I have described Mondo Nano in my notes actually is that it's kind of a, a sort of emergent uh, episteme, right? A sort of like, and, and not to, to unpack that, right? Uh, a kind of, uh, an emergent way of understanding the world and how action or agency operates within it um and you could be pretty specific and say sort of like what people do in the world how how human action operates in the world uh but one of the things that's going to be very important for um many chapters of this argument is that it's not just human action uh that uh nano is in some ways uh, uh, affording people a language for understanding how their agency is technologically mediated. Mm -hmm. uh, the actual, so here's preview for a, for a podcast that may happen. Mondo Nano is Homestuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yes, right? And especially the Mondo part, right? So so Milburn kind of breaks down, right? You know, Nano mm -hmm. obviously is like the nanotech thing, right? Can, can I Mondo say why, why Mondo Nano is Homestuck? Because that's like a weird thing to leave people hanging on. No. Okay. <laughs> yes, All right. That'll can. that'll be in the real podcast. <laughs> no, you can if you want to. Well, I wanted to to lay out what the Mondo is, and maybe that'll actually be helpful for yes. the, All right. the Homestuck thing. So Mondo comes from the, these um, uh, like films from the seventies and eighties. I guess mm -hmm. I was not familiar with these until I looked them up. Uh, so they're films like Mondo Bizarro uh -huh. and. And the idea behind them is that they are kind of like, you know, if you, uh, they're, they're kind of the precursor for something like Faces of Death, if you're familiar with that. Yes. Where, where it's like a supercut film of salacious, uh, weird, like just, and, uh, you know, sometimes sexy, sometimes disgusting um, content that kind of get, gets all edited together in a film. And the purpose of it is to like go and leer. So it's like the mm -hmm. film version of like a sideshow, like a circus sideshow is the thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Milburn is bringing that out, not for any of those reasons that I just just kind of described it with. But the 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 pitch for him is that what happens with these movies is, they, is that they cross domains with no issues, right? Yeah. Like, like the, what the you most see... famous Mondo film other than uh, you mentioned Faces of Death, which are Mondo films. I would say the other very famous one um, is Con Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, I didn't realize that was a Mondo film. Yes, Cannibal Holocaust is considered a Mondo film. So that's a, mm -hmm. and it's exactly what you're talking about, right? It mixes documentary and sort of staged footage, and people are confused as to whether or not uh, it is real or fiction. Yeah, absolutely. So, so part of it is that you're crossing these different domains, and you don't know, you know, very purposely. It's part of the marketing. Um, what what in the thing is like captured footage that you're watching, right? That's documentary. Which of it is staged and fake? Um, you know, so uh, th like the um, uh, Mondo Bizarro, watch the trailer for that. And it like 
goes back and forth between like sections of like surveillance of sex work right and like Mm -hmm. obviously you know all of the the kind of especially in the the 70s and 80s the kind of uh, gritty urbanness of that right there you're selling this kind of uh, I don't know, uh, gaze into a world in which you are not a part of. And then it like cuts across to um, like a human auction, mm-hmm. uh, like b- people being sold into slavery. And that like that is shocking and nightmarish. And then, you know, Milburn points out that it looks like Laurel Canyon, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's all this kind of moving back and forth. Milburn's not particularly interested in that kind of content, um, weirdness of it. What he's more interested in is thinking about that as like a way of jumping across the world in between things that are real and things that are unreal and how th- this Mondo kind of, um, image package manages all that, right? It just does that and is attractive and gross and alluring and all of these kind of like weird parts of, of you know uh in bad parts of the the human experience it just gets compressed into this big weird package and so mondo nano is like you're saying this emergent kind of um uh relationship to the world in which nanotech is jumping around like that right Mm -hmm. and we follow it because it is uh, alluring and salacious and, and it invites all kinds of speculation about the world um but but also is kind of familiar in some ways that you know it fits into very um, clear uh, delineated pathways. So I don't know. It's a it's a weird organizing principle. It's certainly a weird thing to title your book, but uh, that's where it comes from. Right. And I mean, so just to uh, uh, unpack, I guess, what is at stake in sort of like the question or maybe the fantasy of, of nanotechnology? And this is going to be explained, I think, maybe more in the next chapter. Um, but it, the, the broad strokes idea here is that if nanotechnology right, quote unquote, nanotechnology is sort of fully figured out. Uh, essentially, you have a, a fantasy of what is called in the first chapter, right, the, the, the fantasy of sort of completely programmable matter, right, in the same way that I can, uh, uh, you know, uh, pull up the terminal and start uh, coding or something, right, uh, on a computer. Uh, and like, I am specifically sort of taking, you know, things that a computer can do and stapling them together via code in such a way to produce like interesting computational behaviors, right? That is what programming is. Um, in the same way that I could do that on a computer, what if I was like stapling together individual types of atoms, right? And building uh, things from uh, the ground up at a molecular level. Uh, so, you know, synthesizing food or synthesizing objects or new types of elements, blah, 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 right? Uh, that is this fantasy of uh, what happens when we can interface with any atom in in creation in the same way that we can manipulate code on a computer, right? That is kind of the ultimate fantasy of, of Mondo Nano. And when I say it's like Homestuck, uh, you know, like the, the best example, the easiest example from Homestuck uh, is that the, the story starts with these kids playing a game called Spurb uh, that is sort of like, uh, a ver- it looks like The Sims, Right. These kids are playing a game together, a computer game. It looks like The Sims. So you have this sort of like top down three quarters view of like a room and you can uh, change that room. Right. You can like delete a wall, expand the floor, uh, put in like weird gamey objects that, uh, you know, accomplish certain functions. The sort of trick to it 
uh, the, the, the twist is that this isn't just in the computer. Like when the kids are editing the room, they are editing each other's rooms. It's a multiplayer game. Um, and so they have this kind of dollhouse view of each other's homes that they are all manipulating. And that is like the purpose of the game is to reconstruct your friend's homes in order to build a tower up to all this other stuff, right? There's a whole bunch of other stupid lore that we don't need to get into. Uh, the principle is this idea of the tiny little thing that I can manipulate that actually has like weird, huge consequences for the world outside of like my tiny little window into uh, uh, like whatever interface I'm using to manipulate, right? Like I can make a tiny little change uh, at the nano level that has a huge uh, consequence at the at the level of Mondo, at the level of the world. Yeah. Well, and uh, yes, uh, uh, not knowing anything about Homestuck, I cannot confirm or deny if any of that is true. If you were interested in us, uh, in Michael explaining Homestuck to me and me puzzling my way through it, uh, we are uh, probably little, um, somewhere around 150 patrons away from our special podcast we're going to make on Homestuck. Mm -hmm. You can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch in order to support us there, uh, in order to get us to that goal. But... We're not talking about home stuff. This is, uh, I'm going to start doing this. It's going to be the uh, David Bowie, we're not talking about Judy mm -hmm. uh, thing. But we're not talking about Homestuck. Mm -hmm. We're not going to talk about Homestuck. <laughs> I'm going to disappear. That was, just, that was just the little preview that you get, right? I'll, I'll give you more uh, if, if when that show takes off. In exchange for money. Uh-huh, yes. <laughs> um, the, but yeah, I mean, basically, uh, you just did a really great job of, of kind of explaining that kind of relationship there. And also, basically, what's going on in the vast majority of the first chapter. Uh, because really what Milburn is giving us in the first chapter is kind of a historical construction of where nanotech comes from. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, Richard Feynman, the physicist, gives a talk in 1959 called There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom, where he speculates about how one could manipulate matter at the atomic level um, mm -hmm. and kind of, and apparently it was funny, you know, Feynman, it, it was uh, well known for his jokes and jokery mm -hmm. um, and his uh, uh, famous stand-up comedian sold out Madison Square Garden, of course, in 1981. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was um, actually uh, one of the original Ghostbusters, but he had to drop out for other commitments. Mm -hmm. He uh, was one of the original uh, late-nighters at the Comedy Store. Mm -hmm. um, he actually went in very famously and uh, handpicked Eddie Murphy uh, <laughs> to, you know, uh, make him part of the, the comedy <laughs> world. So, uh, you know, huge shout-out. None of that's true, by the way. <laughs> this, this is a bit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but, you know, uh, famous public speaker, Richard, Richard Feynman, you know, kind of um, science evangelist in some ways, too, but also a, a serious physicist. And uh, so he gives this talk, and it kind of takes root in a lot of different ways um, in people's kind of fantastic imagination of in the, the post-war period of, um, you know, the 50s and the 60s, as science in the U.S. in particular is exploding, right? And huge amounts during the Cold War, huge amounts of money are being funneled into the kind of uh, uh, technocratic institutions of the United States, um, something that's really fascinating for people is what if you could change the world at that level you're talking about, at the atomic level, at the most um, you know micro levels. And uh, so, yeah, so Milburn kind of walks us through that and walks us through it in relationship to speculation and play in ways that we've already talked about here so far and, um, and, and kind of talks about some of the, the engaging metaphors that happen here. The one that I think is particularly interesting happens on um, uh, page 33, 
where some scientists refer to them and think about them in relationship to tinker toys, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you know, if you can take atoms and you can use them to make little uh, hyper, you know, quite literally atomic structures, and you can put those atomic structures together, you can start building stuff. And if you can start building stuff at that level, then you can start building things at larger levels. And that's the the kind of science fictional speculation fantasy, right, that mm-hmm. everyone has, right? If we can master it at the smallest possible level, then what can we produce at the human scale? Um, right. And, uh, you know, so he walks through all these different things. He also walks through quite a bit of science fiction that engages with that, right? You know, think about the Fantastic Voyage or something like that. You know, a little submarine right. you can pilot around in your blood. He talks about some of the institutes, the kind of consultancy firms and kind of, you know, uh, tech industry um, PR firms, essentially, who Mm -hmm. exist just to evangelize around these things and to kind of speculate and generate uh, uh, interest around them. Um, And so, you know, kind of laying, giving a lay of the land and how is nanotech imagined and then how does it kind of move around in um in the world of science both from the 1950s and now right right and sort of like a a parallel illustration with like the fantastic voyage and the little nano sub um that i think is important here or at least at least helpful illustrative is the idea of the nano car like a Mm -hmm. tiny tiny nano sized vehicle that could you know theoretically be used to like move other smaller things around and this is one of the things that Feynman brings up in his talk right as like sort of a possibility and as Milburn is kind of emphatic about it is not clear to what degree Feynman actually means some of these things or to what degree he's just kind of like yeah wouldn't it be funny if we had like tiny little cars that we could use to move atoms around and like in to a certain extent it doesn't matter because people hear this talk and you get actual scientists who then make it kind of like their goal to build these tiny little cars and and two i don't remember which it might be popular mechanics or popular science one one of those uh kind of you know national magazines that were huge in the 50s and 60s um actually ran ran a digest version of the talk right as an Mm -hmm. article and so there's this kind of maneuver here where it's unclear well milburn says that people in the audience at the time were laughing because mm-hmm. it, you know, it's Feynman and delivery is funny, and some of these ideas are, are quite silly. But you know, uh, when you transfer that to text, and it just becomes a statement about what one can do, and that circulates, it changes the whole kind of operation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and I, I thought this actually really interestingly paired with the Fickle that we read before in the kind of um, citizen science stuff that that Fickle was talking about in the 1950s and 60s, the uh, in the game theory uh, encouragement that people were going through. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that that you at your home could be doing some of the operations of game theory and kind of pushing that field forward. Very much the uh, similar operation happening here with nanotech. That nanotech is being in its moment of invention is in a speech for an audience of scientists and it immediately gets popularized and moves into the imagination, um, you know, through the, the Feynman speech, but also through a, a huge amount of science fiction writers, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, Heinlein's work shows up here a few times in this book as someone who has popularized the idea of like uh, systems of control that happen at, you know, uh, the micro level, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, the, some of the narratives about Heinlein that show up in this book are pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nuclear scientists going to hang out with, um, Jack Parsons and, you yeah. know, Heinlein setting Parsons up with, 
uh, roommates and things like that who are actual nuclear scientists and missile and ballistic missile scientists. Mm-hmm. That's uh, pretty wild. Pretty wild mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, I mean, I think I one of the other things I told you is that by the by the last chapter, when Madame Blavatsky shows up, <laughs> yeah. uh, this is very much a Michael Lutz book because I'm like, yep, I'm going to talk about like, you know, theosophy. <laughs> Yeah, um, and going to treat it as basically just as relevant as Richard Feynman and also Heinlein for some reason. I mean, not for some reason. I think this is good, right? I understand exactly what Milburn is up to, and it's you know like like recognized like there. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so that's kind of like the big uh, structure here of the uh, of the thing uh, of of the first chapter uh, that's kind of late, you know, giving us the lay of what everything looks like. I wrote this this. Uh, down um from page 38 because i think it it really solidifies the connection to game studies in a good Mm -hmm. way this is a quote if the classical game of science has always been to learn the rules of nature today's game of speculative techno science involves a different ethos hack cheat modify and hedge playing against the rules loading the dice gaming the game Mm -hmm. so you know there's something here going on with that speculate that that a playful attitude, right, in science or and a speculative attitude in play mm-hmm. um, produces a relationship to the kind of rules-based nature of the game where one is always trying to exceed them. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we understand in a broad sense how atoms work. And uh, in, in fact, in the next couple chapters, we're going to, or I guess if you, no, it's in the next chapter, actually, we're going to be talking about how we don't know how proteins work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it is precisely this kind of playful attitude toward it um, that has given us some tools for thinking about it, but also for thinking our way around how proteins work. So, um, you know, the, the idea that like, Milburn is setting up the idea that there is a set of rules that nanotech and the kind of Mondo nano culture is uh, uh, oriented toward, but that orientation is not one of following the rules. It's one of kind of blowing them up and mm-hmm. setting out new rules um, you know, this is also why Respawn has hackers in it too. I mean, you know, when I said it feels like a sequel, you know, his next book, it really does because it is this kind of, um, the, the whole book is about figures who kind of get one over on, you know, the system that they're working within. But, um, unless you've got anything else to say about chapter one, I think we can move to chapter two, digital matters. Yeah. And this is, uh, again, it's sort of expanding on certain ideas from the previous chapter, but it, it starts out uh, going to in Catherine Haley's, uh, who we've talked about a couple times on this show before, um, and what she calls the regime of computation uh, in her, I think it's from um, How We Became Posthuman. Um, and, uh, what Haley's is talking about when she talks about the regime of computation is sort of the way that, uh, post-World War II, the computer becomes the master metaphor for, like, uh, a number of different uh disciplines um you know like oh the human brain is like a computer in that uh it takes inputs and produces outputs or something along these lines right uh uh, Mm -hmm. this way that uh um everything suddenly or like there becomes suddenly this fantasy of everything in the world being capable of being uh, uh, apprehended or represented or manipulated through what is essentially a, a computational practice. Uh, and that is, uh, as Milburn here admits, right, exactly what a mono, a Mondo Nano is doing, uh, that it takes kind of the regime of computation and then uses this idea of digital mat- matter, like programmable matter, uh, to expand it out to to all of uh, you know, the cosmos, basically. Um, 
Now, it's worth pointing out that Haley's has uh, some specific critiques of the regime of computation from that book. Um, you know, the ways that uh, it, it tends to kind of like smuggle in gendered biases or the ways that uh, it does not, in fact, think through questions of embodiment in, in sufficient ways. Uh, and that's all like those those critiques still stand. Uh, and it may seem like Milburn is kind of just like, whoa, great. Like, I love the regime of computation. Um, but in fact, that is not what like this book is about the ambivalences that end up being inherent in the regime of computation. He doesn't quite take uh, uh, the exact same tack that Haley's does, uh, but he is going to show how in, in a very Derridian way, right, how uh, these systems, um, on the one hand, like produce kind of uh, 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 a sort of maybe negative or or oppressive or sort of, you know, I think the listener could probably think like, well, I can, you know, I've, I've lived in the past 10 years. I've seen what happens when people uh, act like technology is just going to solve reality rather than exacerbate an existing problem. Um, so I have some reservations about this idea of Mondo Nano. Uh, and I think Milburn would say, as well you should, uh, but like the thing about Mondo Nano is that it is going to produce kind of uh, its own uh, inconsistencies or incoherences uh, that open up kind of spaces for possible resistance or sort of counter readings of its own regime. Um, and we'll get into more of that in, in especially in later chapters. Yeah, I think if, um, you know, if you're looking for connections to other previous books that we've read too, you, you know, you can think about Mondo Nano as a particular type of game space. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. working game game. space. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, you know, it is a kind of a flavor. If if game space as a, a concept was too big, right? And I think mm -hmm. maybe it is. It is perhaps too uh, broad to be, you know, locally helpful for anyone. Um, you know, it, because you know, work. She's producing a theory that speaks to everything on the planet, right? And so mm -hmm. localizing that is sometimes hard. You know, Mondo Nano is the the way that game space works in the particular figuration of, uh, you know, nanotech and yeah. how it moves, right? And so it, it comes with a lot of problems. I, you know, I think that Mondo Nano is not a celebratory project in any way. It's a descriptive project. Yes, exactly. Um, right. And so, you know, in the same way that game space is a descriptive project, right? It's trying to, mm -hmm. to find words to describe what is happening and um you know i think this is part of the the logic too of why this should maybe be taken up or you know i would love to see additional work being done on this that's kind of following from uh, milburn's work is that um what then does the you know the picture of race for example look like mm -hmm. uh, under under the thing which is it goes unremarked upon in this book right it, you know that's mm -hmm. just not something that Milburn seems particularly attuned to or interested in talking about mm -hmm. I'd like to read uh, actually a quote that I have here this is from page 44 and I pulled this quote out specifically because I think it jives so well as um, a compliment and also contrast to work in game space uh, quote the virtual world interface as the site of nanotechnological in investigation, and let's pause, uh, like what he is talking about here is the fact that when you are doing nanotechnology research, you are using, like you're, you don't have like atoms in front of you that you are directly manipulating. You are looking at a representation on a screen of mm -hmm. something at a scale that you cannot see. And so in this weird way, uh, you know, doing this type of research is like... Uh, 
playing a video game that is actually producing something at the end, right? There is something that is not contained within the game that you end up with on your, you know, your Petri dish or whatever. So the virtual world interface as the site of nanotechnological, nanotechnological investigation is a space apart, a recreational space where matter finally makes sense as nothing otherwise than digital, right? Like the, the, the issue here is not that um, there was a world and we thought matter worked in one way and now we're kind of like imposing this digital epistemology onto it, right? Thinking of matter through digital terms. Uh, the, the claim is like, oh, actually, once we sort of flip around and start thinking about matter as digital, other things start making sense, right? Or rather, it, open up, it, it opens up uh, uh, new avenues for speculation or thought or, or possibility. Mm hmm. Yeah, the uh, let's talk really briefly about the, the manipulation thing because I I think that's one of the most exciting uh, little little parts of this chapter, mm -hmm. um, the nano manipulator, mm -hmm. right? So it's this thing that that's basically a force feedback joystick for pushing atoms around, and you know mm -hmm. as you're saying it, it gives you, you get the like looks like a screen manipulation here, um, and uh, you know it's showing you the atoms, nano manipulator is partially made by Warren Robinette, mm -hmm. the guy who made Adventure mm -hmm. for the Atari. Mm -hmm. That's the wildest thing on earth to me. So this is the other like thing that I love about this book is how Milburn is just going to go for it, right? This is the stuff that I find constantly when I'm doing research, where it's just like, whoa, what the hell? Why is this person and their idea showing up in this other context where it's sort of related, but also completely different, right? Why is uh, uh, this programmer who, who made Adventure for Atari showing up in nanotechnology labs? Uh, that seems like something that is totally, like, like those things are totally unrelated. And Milburn just swings around and says, no, these are incredibly related, right? This is, this is like a thing that matters for nanotech and for games that you can move between these fields with such ease. Yes. And, you know, something, something that's like missing here, obviously, because, uh, you know, the, this is not about Warren Robinette, right? But I think about the like incredible crunch conditions that Warren Robinette talked about when making Adventure, like that game blew through production, like all the Atari games blew through production, um, and he made it in a very short amount of time. And I just think about you know the what gets talked about quite quite a lot now, which is that people with experience in the game industry just burn out of it, right? And so there's this interesting kind of labor story here too of Warren Robinette being. Um, you know, burned out of the games industry after making uh, one of the most important video games of all time. Mm -hmm. You know, this this adaptation of Adventure um, for the 2600, I think for the 2600, and uh, then going on and moving into academia, and I guess getting a graduate degree. He might have had it beforehand, I'm not sure. But he gets a graduate degree, and then he moves into academia, and he's using the kind of you know, mental, he's using the, the speculative mindset that one might be using of investigation when you're making games, but because of the labor conditions of the industry, that, that speculative mindset is pushed off into another field entirely, but which still produces something. It looks like a video game just in a different discipline and domain. It's fascinating to me how, how that, that kind of worked out and, and happened. But yeah, so you get a force feedback uh, a joystick, you get to feel some like crunchy vibes when you're pushing atoms mm -hmm. around. They have friction and stuff like that. Um, I, you know, that sounds fun. I want to, uh, if you've got access to one of these, I want to come play with it, please. 
Yeah, no, that'd be nice. Invite us in. We'll do a live show in your lab. We will. I'll do it. I'll and I'll push Adams around while I'm doing it, and I'll uh, talk <laughs> about philosophy while I do it. Be like, oh, Georges Bataille, blah blah blah. <laughs> oh. Um, and then the the other thing that this chapter does, sort of the back half that it points that the thing that it points out is that nanotechnology is all over video games as a mm -hmm. like in in text, right? As a kind of narrative plot device. Uh, and so we like go through like Ratchet and Clank, the Deus Ex games. Um, there's a game called Remission that I think is kind of this sort of medical edutainment game that's about being a little nano sub and you fight cancer cells. Um, there's also Nano Breaker, like which is a PlayStation 2 game that seems like it's sort of an actiony like Resident Evil ripoff. And I uh, may I read from your notes here, Cameron? Uh, yes. This is I, I'm reading Cameron's notes here because this is exactly how I feel. Um, this is, I think, RE like Nano Breaker, it which is. is again like what if what if instead of like going to a, a creepy mansion, you went to a Jurassic Park island where a bunch of nanotech had gotten loose, right? I am envious of Milburn's ability to take the dumbest possible video game plot and turn it into a reasonable facsimile of a real world thing, demonstrating cleanly that we live in an extremely dumb world. I am not being sarcastic. Yeah, I <laughs> because if you just read the site, there are multiple pages just describing the plot of Nano Breaker. And it's just it's the most throwaway garbage video game plot, right? And mm -hmm. I don't mean that in the sense of like, I'm not insulting the writers of Nano Breaker here, but one does not get the sense that a narrative was at the forefront of the production of this PlayStation 2 video game, right? Right. It's, it's like, oh, it's, it turns out that your author like the authority figures were actually in on it the whole time, and this was all sort of orchestrated for someone's power grab. Like it's it's the most by the numbers video game plot uh, that you could imagine. <laughs> exactly, right? So like every part of it, like if you told me it's Nano Breaker. The name of the the name of the game is Nano Breaker. It's an action game. Write the plot. I think we could get there. Like you know, uh, the the monkeys with the typewriters. We can mm -hmm. get there pretty quick. Um, but Milburn just takes it extremely seriously and mm -hmm. is like talking about the relationships and doing the mono, mondo nano thing that we've been talking about. Right of talking about how our fascinations with nanotechnology in the scientific world get figured into our media objects and just draws a very clean line to how weirdly predictable this plot is, not at the level that we're talking about, but predictable in the way that it mediates very um, common concerns in ways of thinking about nanotechnology uh, in, in the video game. And yeah, I, I'm extremely, there's no way that I could be this credulous for this long about this video game. Mm -hmm. And uh, Milburn just takes it super seriously and goes for it. Um, I think here's another, like, uh, you know, uh, final paper for someone to write if you want to do this. This is a, a great, uh, you know, grad school end of semester paper. Someone should look at this and then look at the way uh, this, the writing about this video game happens here uh, through Milburn. And then look at the new Doom and Doom Eternal the way that the healing system works in that game, because mm. it is weirdly similar, but just different enough to uh, make for an interesting piece of writing. So check that out. Um, the other thing that happens here too, is that there's a lot of discussion of folding at home, you know, mm -hmm. the uh, protein folding program that you could run on your PlayStation three. Um, 
you can learn about that if you want to. It's an interesting thing, but it's also something I've read about uh, quite a bit before, and it shows up in a lot of game studies work, I think, from this time period, because it's this kind of citizen science thing. You know, people mm -hmm. are contributing to scientific investigation with the um, uh, processing power of their PlayStations. What is interesting to me is that folding at home in order to encourage more people to use it slowly but surely became more like a video game. Uh, mm -hmm. and changed its aesthetics. Um, so there's something here going on with the kind of, you know, wasp and orchid relationship of science video games, right? Like, right. In, in order to bring you in, we got to look more and more like a thing that's going to bring you in. Um, I, I think that's interesting too, but uh, probably not something worth digging hyper into. Um, I think that might be this chapter. Yeah, so the next chapter is uh, an interesting chapter called Tempest in a Teapot, and it is basically just sort of a long read on how the island, right, the, how the, the, the idea or concept or, or figure of islands uh, has functioned in kind of utopian literature, but also how that, like, how that then sort of recurs into what we think of as, like, science fiction uh, later on, right? Because uh, when we start with the, the tradition of utopian literature, this is, you know, like the, the, the late Middle Ages or what have you. Um, and uh, it's sort of a, a like social thought experiment, right? Thomas More's Utopia is kind of like trying to think through how do you design a society kind of from the ground up, right? Like mm -hmm. a society that uh, is structured in completely sort of novel ways uh, that, you know, allegedly is going to reduce some kind of social problem. And then what are the sort of other social problems that this restructuring introduces? And then what are the safeguards you build against that? And so on and so forth. I, I have a correction here. Okay. It's St. Sir Thomas More. Oh, oh, I'm very sorry. We respect St. Sir Thomas More here. Mm. Mm. on this podcast okay well i'm sorry i'm a reformation bro so <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah uh, milburn doesn't bring this up but what's interesting about utopia is that uh it's not just an island it's actually a peninsula in yeah. that book that is turned into an island uh -huh. they, they dig it away from the mainland so it's a you know it's a uh i guess a false island a fictional island i don't i mean obviously it's a fictional island but uh it's produced right it's an artificial mm -hmm. island i guess and that's that's fascinating too um but yeah this kind of figure it, michael it looks like you have uh copy pasted some sort of large image into the notes yeah yeah i mean so what is fascinating to what this uh, the the chapter is called Tempest in a Teapot because uh, this is like the, the one of the big kind of touchstones for this sort of thinking, right? The magical island um, is Shakespeare is the t the Tempest, uh, which is uh, his you know sort of one of his final plays, and it's about a an exiled duke who has uh, gained kind of some magical powers. He has uh, been uh, shipwrecked on this island with his daughter by his enemies for however many years. He's also like uh, enslaved some uh, spirits like literally enslaved them and also like enslaved the only other person who was living on the island. So there's a whole lot of like colonial uh, readings that get put into this play. Um, I, we've talked about it before. We talked about it in the in the CLR James Beyond a Boundary episode uh, mm -hmm. because the Tempest becomes such a, a, a kind of like um, master text for thinking through like issues of European colonialism. Uh, the other thing that happens with that play is that it gets read as a preliminary work of science fiction. Yeah, so uh, 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 there's lots of writing about early modern science. The way that popular literature of the time, I should say, engages with ideas from early modern science in kind of a 
mode that we recognize as sort of fantasy or science fiction kind of prototypically. So like one of the big examples here is usually like Margaret Cavendish's uh, romance, The Blazing World. Um, but, uh, you know, specifically in the case of The Tempest, uh, Scott Maisano uh, has written or is writing an entire book about like which Shakespeare, like Shakespeare, certain Shakespeare plays as prototype science fiction stories. And he has uh, a whole uh, chapter on on The Tempest uh, that is basically like, you know, uh, Prospero, the, the Duke character as kind of like early scientist. Uh, and that the the space of the island is kind of like his experimental island. And then Milburn says, you know, this is this is not Shakespeare's invention. This comes from sort of this utopian tradition. And it also goes into uh, like the the island of Dr. Moreau, right? Like this this then propagates forward. We suddenly get kind of this established trope of the scientific island. Um, the other thing that is sort of interesting here from a historicist perspective is that people are fascinated by islands in, uh, you know, early modern studies and medieval studies because of people like uh, Thomas More and, and Francis Bacon, who, um, you know, ends up writing The New Atlantis, which is, again, another sort of utopian uh, scientific island. Uh, and I pulled in a long quote uh, from an essay called Utopiae Insulae Figura, uh, Utopian Insularity and the Politics of Form uh, by Antonis Balasopoulos. Uh, he is an early modernist at, I think, University of Cyprus. But uh, this is his uh, article on uh, trying to understand, like, what are the politics of this uh, suddenly very popular form of, like, the island, right, as uh, the specific way that the utopia comes to be. Um, and one of the things that is super fascinating to me about his argument, and especially uh, how it intersects with the argument that uh, Milburn is making here, uh, is uh, Balasopoulos uh, argues that the the island becomes a privileged site for humanist thinkers uh, in this time period. And humanist does not mean what it means today about sort of like specific uh, uh, like privileging of like secular human reason and all this stuff, although it's kind of latent in that humanist is kind of like a... Uh, a sort of like professional class, right? Humanist means that you have a certain kind of education and you probably have some sort of like job in civics. Um, but you're also doing a lot of kind of like philosophical thinking and writing that down and sending it to your friends, which is exactly what Thomas More is doing. So the island, Balasopoulos says, emerges as a, a an important figure for these thinkers um, because uh, one one thing that has happened is that we have centralizing monarchical states that are uh, carrying out a process called enclosure, where what was at one point common land um, that anyone could go to and sort of like let their cattle graze or, uh, you know, farm or whatever, right? It was common land. Uh, the process of enclosure goes through and like clears out common land by taking possession for for the state, for the crown, and then that gets divvied up to this or that noble family. And suddenly you have a whole bunch of people who were formerly subsistence farmers uh, who don't have any land that they can farm on and live. And now you have this kind of floating uh, pool of uh, itinerant laborers, essentially, people who have to sell uh, their ability to labor to uh, other types of people. And this is all part of, you know, the transition to contemporary capitalism. Uh, Marx talks about enclosure uh, uh, extensively. Um, and Balasopoulos argues that uh, the sort of humanist thinkers of this time period uh, felt a kind of kinship 
with uh, the the sort of like dispossessed uh, uh, laborers post enclosure uh, because they were people who were ostensibly trained to know how to like organize your social institutions, right? And your sort of like civic society. Um, but they were constantly being uh, like what what uh, people like Thomas More wanted to do was always kind of subject to like monarchical whim or power. And so they they identify, says Balasopoulos, uh, with uh, these these petty producers because what they want is like a space of their own to carry out their sort of like to put down their own structures and then see what happens. And then uh, he also argues that the island in particular is good for this one, because it's kind of removed from the domain of whatever kingdom. Um, but it also like is poetically interesting to humanists because the idea of the island as, as a self-contained space uh, plays into a lot of humanist ideals about like the mind's ability to control the, the body, right? A kind of uh, proto Cartesianism. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, of course, Balasopoulos says all of this just gets co-opted into the emergence of capitalism, right? This idea of like a, a space that could be uh, mapped and controlled uh, and sort of uh, uh, rationalized in this way uh, has a lot of uh, bad sort of implications. But it aligns so closely with some of the things that uh, Milburn is saying that it is just incredible to me, right? So this is just a quote from Balasopoulos. If, quote-unquote, society can be imaginatively grasped in terms of a totalizable set of ingeniously arranged and interlocking assemblages, it is because it is imaged as something at once total and finite, pictured as a, quote-unquote, manageable totality, to evoke Greg Dinning's uh, telling description of the traditional island imaginary. Um... So the argument here, right, is that uh, utopian thinkers like Moore, like Bacon, uh, choose the island because they understand society as a bunch of interlocking and arranged assemblages, right? Church, uh, like the various parts of the state, uh, various sort of like laboring populations, um, and that these things are to some extent, right, contingent and arbitrary, that they could be remade, that you can uh, reassess the relationships between these parts of, of the state. Uh, and the island is the place where you can do that, right? Because you can grasp the, the sort of total finite thing that is society and then start pulling the Legos apart and popping them back together in a different arrangement, which is Mondo Nano, right? It is uh, exactly that fantasy of of programmable digital matter, uh, but not about matter, about sort of like social fabric, right? And and the idea, or sort of the the the, the fundamental sort of uh, desire uh, that Balasopoulos is pointing to is that uh, you could, in theory construct a society that didn't need a, a platonic philosopher king, right? If you built the right society, it would run itself. It would become autonomous. Um, and so... You know, that's that's that whole thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I mean, weirdly enough, I mean, I guess we continue our like a detour here through early modernism, but that's basically what's going on in this chapter. Mm -hmm. Like everything that you everything you just laid down. Uh, it's very telling that you took like two full pages of notes on this and I took literally two notes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I felt that that was very indicative. And it, like, the reason I did take a lot of notes is because, and this is, I'm not sort of like shouting down Milburn here, but like, this is a like, huge sort of like sub area of research in my field about islands and utopias and things like that. And not a whole lot of it shows up in Milburn's uh, citational apparatus. But 
it is fascinating to think that he has come up with a kind of uh, a, an, an argument that is like isometric to the one that happens in my field, right? Mm-hmm. He was talking about cobweb, moat, and mustard seed over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He talks a lot about uh, uh, Henry S. Turner's book, uh, Shakespeare's Double Helix, where, and this, I, I told you this before we recorded, when I started reading this book, I was like, man, the way he is theorizing nanotechnology is almost like dead on how certain people uh, who do like science and technology studies in Shakespeare studies theorize the early modern theater. And then I got to this chapter with Henry Turner's book, and Henry Turner is the precise person I was thinking of when I said that Milburn is theorizing nanotechnology in the same way that uh, someone in my field does theater. It's weird that Shakespeare just thought of everything, huh? Uh-huh. Or at wow. least we can make Shakespeare think of everything. Mm-hmm. Really invented the human over here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you got anything else you want to say about islands? Uh, no, not particularly. The other thing that he kind of touches on here, uh, just to think about is because it's going to come up later is the way that like, uh, nanotech gets sold, right? It, like he talks about like a sunscreen that has like a kind of, uh, a synthesized titanium in it or something. And the way that weirdly enough, it, the, the ad, uh, like invokes Shakespeare in order to kind of like normalize nanotechnology. Uh, we also talk about, um, uh, other tight like you know fibroplasts like uh, like certain nanotech experiments if you want to know about this stuff if it sounds interesting like pick up this book and read it because we would just be telling you in more detail exactly what he is telling you uh, but there are some interesting nanotech experiments where like they are accidentally sort of like producing little islands of copper and then have like mm-hmm. you know, the 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 sort of elements that they are bringing into conjunction together are resulting in kind of emergent behaviors that end up making things that are not alive, like uh, uh, copper atoms, behave as if they were autonomous living creatures, right? They are moving it through a medium uh, in a particular way and producing uh, kind of other things that uh, are sort of, you know, automatic responses. But nevertheless, you know, it ends up looking, when you're watching it happen, looks like a little animal scurrying across to, across your slide. Yeah, and they also produce, like, holes. Mm -hmm. There's something weird going on there, too. Yeah, yeah. It says, you know, the island, this is how the chapter ends, quote, the island is not an island. It is a nexus, a chiasmus. It is a fundamentally open site where strange futures gestate, waiting to be born. Um, And then he sort of gets into uh, Caliban here and and how Caliban makes a a threat about propagation and futurity in that play, uh, which... Uh, if you're a Shakespeare studies scholar listening uh, uh, and you want to, to talk about this, it would be very uh, cool to filter back in the colonial stuff that I was mentioning, especially the race stuff, because Caliban is a, a, a racialized subject and figure out what that means. Uh, you know, Caliban's threat to propagate uh, on the island that was stolen from him uh, is is uh, it's a, it's a complicating factor for this argument uh, in a way that I think would produce some uh, more granular or interesting work for, for my field specifically. Mm, massively multiplayer laboratories, Michael, the next chapter. Um, yeah. I mean, this is, this is the chapter about second life or one of them, I guess, because we're going to get another second life chapter left yeah, later. Yeah. And it kind of begins with a, uh, it, it's another, I would say this is almost like a second introduction or a mm-hmm. second first chapter where the you know the the first first chapter laid out the argument around uh, you know the birth of nanotech and like what do people think about nanotech that that we then are able to 
uh, kind of spin up into the rest of the stuff. Um, this is kind of laying the laying the the framework for the last chapter, um, kind of, um, because it's kind of setting up what do people think in this time period, right? Especially in the early two thousands, what are people thinking about virtual worlds and like what they do? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you know, there's a lot of engagement here with Castronova, um, who, uh, um, gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on that economies of uh, who used to teach it. I'm blanking on the name of the book, but. Um, anyway, basically, there's this just kind of this uh, this question here about um, what are virtual worlds? What do they make possible when human beings can interact with big constructed spaces that they can generate on their own? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's also the problem on like the nanoscale, right? Uh, or not the problem, but the interesting thing about the nanoscale, right? What happens when you can create all of reality from the bottom up, you know, from, mm-hmm. from little tiny cars to big cars? Um, so, you know, the, the uh, multiplayer virtual worlds, right, in a broad sense, uh, MMO uh, places, um, uh, those afford this particular kind of relationship between scales. Um, they allow us to think the, the way that we interact with programmable worlds, um, and there's this whole thing at the beginning too about like the nano workspace. You, this is, I guess, according to your notes on one eleven, one twelve. But like that, Pac-Man keeps showing up in the nano world. We like keep inventing Pac-Mans and mm-hmm. discovering Pac-Mans, either things that work like Pac-Man or things that look like Pac-Man on the atomic and molecular scales. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, that's working to uh, this kind of question of what do we use virtual worlds for? And how do they kind of operationalize some of our fantasies at the micro scale in a macro way that we can interact with? Uh, he talks about nanotechnology island in Second Life, where people are building big models of these things. Um, mm-hmm. That's going to come up later as well. And yeah, Second Life is all over this, um, meaning that Second Life is a place where you can build whatever you want as long as you're willing to pay rent, essentially. And so people have used it to do all kinds of interesting exploratory work of uh of trying to build things that are real small real big uh, there's a great on 118 there's a great double set of images that is mm-hmm. colin milburn in real life using a molecular machine and then colin mm-hmm. milburn in second life mm-hmm. using a molecular machine it's in like pose the exact same way and everything mm-hmm. uh, and we need I to really... we need to tell tell the listener uh colin milburn's uh second life avatar is like a uh, shirtless, uh, muscled <laughs> yeah. bishonin um, with giant black angel wings. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> very he, cool. And he, this is like this shows up throughout the book is his his second life avatar, and it's great because yeah, Colin Day after yes. is his name. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, he's like he's like crying black tears all the uh-huh. time. He's got a he's got actually I was gonna say he has a bowl cut, but looking at the images, he kind of just has Colin Milburn's haircut. So mm-hmm. uh, it's just a little bit lo-fi. I wouldn't say weirdly enough, I wouldn't say Colin Milburn in real life in this image has a bowl cut, but his avatar does have a bowl cut. But if you look at them comparatively, they're pretty close. So I don't I don't know what that says about it. But he's also wearing like uh, swim trunks, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, flying around in the sky with uh, with it, uh, and there's no commentary on this. On like, no, on like the the decision to make his avatar look this way, but um, it's pretty cool. It's pretty wicked rad, I would say. It's just it makes me really jealous. To, like I'm like I need to think of the context in which I can present my like <laughs> extremely like online OC to my academic readership. Yes, 
Yeah, it's a huge um, mistake on your part so far that you haven't been able to do that. Right. All I do is make stupid tweets. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. Uh, the the Second Life thing is fascinating. We cover some things that you might expect, like Neil Stevenson and the metaverse uh, from Snow Crash. Um, obviously, the Diamond Age, Stevenson's like nanotech book has, has shown up a couple times here, um, particularly uh, with regard to... Uh, the the thing that I think obs- obsesses Stevenson maybe more than anything else, which is like the tendency of human communities to diverge and particularize um, and like sort of make themselves uh, mm-hmm. and looking at Second Life as kind of a, w- a place where that is happening in all sorts of weird ways. Uh, and you see like uh, like gray goo attacks, right, which comes out of like nanotechnology speculation and theorization, particularly through Eric Drexler, who's kind of like a big uh, initial nanotech theorist. What the heck is his book's uh, name from the 80s? Is it like Engines of the Gods or something? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I just read the book where it's cited and talked did. about. I did, but I didn't write down the name of this book. <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, uh, in that book, um, he talks about, uh, you know, the potential for, like, the, the, the nightmare s- scenario for nanotech, right? Which is that if you made some kind of replicating uh, nanotech that just could process all, like, all matter at the atomic level through itself and make more of itself. And it's just useless gray goo, right? Like what would happen if we made one of these little replicators and then it got loose and then just started replicating everything into uh, useless garbage. Um, yeah. It's and kind we, of the, the Michael Crichton, Michael Crichtonization of nanotech, right? Exactly. Like, what, what's the worst way it could go wrong? And in um, fact, Michael Crichton wrote this book. It's called Prey. <laughs> oh, is that is that true? That's like one of the few Michael Crichton books I haven't read. I didn't realize that was a nanotech book. Yeah, it's about uh, uh, it's about nanotech swarms. Um, uh, yeah, so it's like it's it's not uh, the, the 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 little swerve in Prey is not that uh, the the nanotech is going to turn everything into gray goo. The the swerve is that the nanotech actually likes the world and wants to sort of keep it in place, right? The nanotech mm-hmm. figures out ways of like controlling people without being obvious about it. So anyway, mm-hmm. um the uh the gray goo attacks uh in like second life um you know do, don't take specifically the form of uh, here's a bunch of goo, right? This is just like a nonsense thing that's reprocessing everything else into more nonsense. Uh, well, it is, right? But it's uh, it's the rings from Sonic, right? The golden rings. Uh, that's I the big it. great. Yeah, uh, like people like people started noticing in Second Life these objects that looked like the the rings from Sonic, and whenever they were touched, they would explode in the way that they kind of you know do into multiple rings in the Sonic games. They would make the classic sound effect, and then there would just be more of them, right? And then people would touch those, and then there would be more, and people would touch those, and there would be more, uh, and they were just like replicating uh, and using up all of the system resources, and you know bringing down the network essentially. Um, and so there's just so much here from all of like Milburn's interrelated concerns. There's so much here to talk about, like the way that the the gray goose scenario is speculated about and imagined in nanotech literature that gets processed into a form of griefing or trolling online, which adopts the the sort of aesthetics or the skin of video game culture. Yes. And then there is an actual like cultural response to it. And so Milburn does in this chapter, and I think in in the next chapter, does a lot of work to 
I guess look at forums. I didn't look at the the footnote to see exactly where where these are coming from, but I'm assuming these are forums or blog comments, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just to see like what people are talking about and how they're doing it. And so you get this kind of combination of anger about uh, what's happening uh, because obviously people are paying into Second Life and they don't like the idea that the servers are offline due to self-replicating uh, Sonic rings. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a kind of playful nature to it where people think it's really cool. And there's this kind of fascinating, like, um, I'm sad that I missed it vibe going on too. Like I didn't see it, you know, I never mm-hmm. got to be there when I, when the world ended kind of thing. Um, and so he's kind of, he traces that around in order to kind of talk about what are the relationships to these massively multiplayer online worlds, right? Like how do people th- think their experience there as kind of participants and, um, I don't like experimenters in a broad sense, right? People who mm-hmm. want to do that work. I, it would be interesting to compare this to Communities of Play, the Celia Pierce book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and then like to the point that gray goo attacks within Second Life become a type of performance art, right? There are people within <laughs> yes. Second Life who are performance artists who are known for staging stunts like this. Banana attack. Yes. Uh, weapons grade cartoons. This is, I think, is the uh, this and the next chapter are like the keynote chapters in this book. I think the ones that the the mo- if people have read from this book, this is the what they're most familiar with. This is the the stuff I've seen cited the most. Um, Weapons grade cartoon uh, cartoons begins with a pretty famous event. I, I used to hear more people talk about it than I do now, but uh, the U.S. Army Research Office. In I don't know what year I didn't write the year down for this, but early two thousand sometime. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Army Research Office gave the Institute for Soldier Nanotechnologies at MIT fifty million dollars mm-hmm. for research into a bunch of applied fields that have to do with soldier nanotechnologies. And part of the portfolio for the pitch there, the kind of grant pitch uh, that was used everywhere, right? You know, like these images get recycled and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff. But they are, it is a comic book image that has been edited from the cover of a comic book called Radix, mm-hmm. which I had never heard of before. Um, and like, it's, not, it's not a big two comic, right? This is an independent comic book. Um, it's got a very much an image kind of style, an yes, image comic style. It looks like image comics, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the very much a um, uh, Rob Liefeld kind of style in that, in that universe. I'm not saying that they're like borrowing from Rob Liefeld, but it's got that kind of early 90s kind of look to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, that, that happens. And these two brothers who made the comic, which I didn't write their names down either for some reason, uh, the Lie, the Lie brothers, um, they, they're like, hey, what the hell? What is going on here? Like, what is happening that you took our comic book and you're, you have used that as your pitch to get 50 million from the government? Mm-hmm. And the head of the institute, this is just like the saddest thing, right? Mm-hmm. The head of the Institute for Soldier Nanotechnologies at MIT says, you know what? He releases the statement. He says, you know what? I'm so sorry. My daughter is a graphic designer. Uh-huh. Graphic design is her passion. Uh-huh. <laughs> he doesn't say that, but <laughs> that's the vibe of this whole thing. He's like, my daughter's a, a graphic designer. We were getting close to submission, and we just didn't have anything that pizzazzed this thing up. And so I said, hey, excuse me, my own daughter. 
Can you give us an image? Can you like graphic design up an image for us that like communicates what we're thinking of here? And she produces this image that is kind of like someone either coming out of stealth of, you know, like invisibility predator style stealth or going into stealth. It's very unclear with a gun kind of focused at the camera, right? Shooting directly down the barrel of the lens of this, you know, visual image. And, um, uh, you know, she, she produced this, this image for us and we put it in there and I had no idea that my daughter had kind of used and repurposed and, you know, I don't know, ripped off, right? Yeah. The art of your comic book. Yeah. Right. She I'm like so traced sorry. it or she did an edit of it or something weird. Yeah. It was like a Photoshop-y kind of edit because the pose is exactly the same. You can literally map the images onto one another. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I'm so sorry about that. My bad. Uh, you know, no copyright intended <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> at the bottom of the, the YouTube video, right? And um, and so he just throws his daughter under the bus, right? Yeah, like, it's such a to the bizarre tune of fifty move. million dollars. <laughs> it's like I'm sorry, my daughter. Like <laughs> in in like this story that has the players of like you know MIT, this Institute for Soldier Nanotechnology, the U.S. government. <laughs> it's like I'm sorry, my daughter did a plagiarism. Yeah, yes, exactly right. So, like, these billion and trillion dollar institutions of, you know, passing money back and forth, right? My Yeah, exactly. My daughter did a plagiarism, and my bad. I'm so sorry that we did that. That we got $50 million ripping off your independent comic book. And, uh, but, but you know, he's using this. I mean, this is exactly what we're talking about, this kind of relationship of Mondo Nano, meaning that there is a, that the image of the future, the image of the nano soldier is borrowing from and ripping off directly, right, the mm -hmm. fictional images of speculative technologies. And those things are like a closed loop, right? Like mm -hmm. the future is borrowed and put into the present, and then the present borrow, you know, uh, demonstrates or, or bleeds the future in some ways in order to produce itself. You know, there's this right. weird uh, back-to-the-future relationship that goes on with um, nanotech itself. And so he uses that as kind of a launching point to... Um, to talk about some of these issues. Um, and then he gets into close reading the military industrial complexes own thoughts about this. Um, mm -hmm. There is this guy named Dutch DeGay. Uh-huh. I, there's a lot, like Dutch DeGay gets his own like sections of multiple chapters because he's kind of a like future weapons uh, proselytizer. Yes, right? named Dutch DeGay. Dutch and Dutch is a nickname. Yes. And it's it's the same nickname of Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Predator. Mm -hmm. Or in Predator, I'm sorry. It's not yeah. The Predator. That's the sequel. Uh but you know, so it's this this that is also its own kind of like reproductive loop, right, of science of science fiction and military technology. That this proselytizer's own name mm -hmm. is also seemingly a reference to Predator or in conversation with Predator. Um, uh, so, you know, it's this replicative, it's its own gray goo in some ways. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, this is from one of the, the quotations here, uh, the project itself, I think, uh, this is the, from the, the NSI the, or the ISN, the Institute for Soldier Nanotechnologies is on 139. Imagine the psychological impact upon oh, a foe when encountering squads of seemingly invincible warriors protected by armor and endowed with superhuman capabilities, such as the ability to, to leap over 20-foot walls. And I'm saying that in this voice because you can hear Otacon saying this, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you can hear uh, someone who is inventing Metal Gear being like, it's the ultimate deterrent, <laughs> Snake! <laughs> Imagine! It'll end war forever! 
Imagine the Shagohod. <laughs> what if the Shagohod could could end the Cold War immediately? And and that's the pitch here, right? Is that mm-hmm. nanotech soldiers, like super soldiers, will be such a powerful deterrent that it will prevent war from ever happening again. Mm-hmm. Um, we know. I mean. How did that? That's literally the argument that we've made about nuclear weapons from the moment of their production. And, mm-hmm. and how did that work out again? Right? Like, <laughs> they, it, we we continue to have hot wars around. We continue to have hot wars around the globe. I'm also turning into a Kojima yeah. character. <laughs> I was gonna say, well, obviously, what we need to do is start building a base somewhere in the middle of the ocean on some on an old tanker. So, <laughs> exactly right. right. The, obviously, the solution is to uh, split the world into thousands of of uh, small rentable armies mm-hmm. and those armies will prevent all the other they'll keep war in check period um but uh, this is also another moment even though uh, metal gear solid comes up in this book a little bit but isn't you know a main character i wouldn't say um this is also a moment too where everyone who says things like kojima predicted the future all the time mm-hmm. um the the reality is that kojima is always like actually 10 years behind and we're just not reading the same things that kojima is reading mm-hmm. um you know like kojima is always behind what the actual weirdness of the the government and the military are doing we're just not paying attention to the things that he pays attention to uh mm-hmm. when he's not watching um uh you know nicholas winding Refn films <laughs> 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 with his, with his spare time um uh, but uh you know kojima's never predicting the future he's just replicating what's happening in industry and in like the think tanks of the world in video game form um around the time that they're happening originally but yeah, he's anyway. like, hey, what if we could play this concept art? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what if we could play this uh, this DARPA <laughs> uh, pitch deck, right? right? And and then we do that. Um, but so you know, Milburn is running through all of these places where science fiction and sci- and kind of comic booky and film stuff. You know, these kinds of these media objects move in and out here, where they are setting the standard for the imagination of the American. Um, particularly the American, but but an international military-industrial complex. He talks about Predator here, too, um, and that everyone thinks the Predator's stealth camouflage is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it is cool. Um, and then he um, ends up producing this concept that he calls Machinic Draft. This mm-hmm. is on 164, which is, quote, the technolo- to technological capture of unwilling soldiers or civilians that transforms them in... That tra- oh, gosh, got to reread this whole thing. <clears throat> the technological capture of unwilling soldiers or civilians that transforms them into killing machines, un- end quote. And so that, that's both something that happens to us in the sense that when we are engaging with these kind of speculative things, we are absorbing a lot of ideology with them, mm-hmm. right? That, that these things would be a good idea to begin with. And also it's something that's happening in all these fictional texts that he's talking about, that when runs when someone runs into the kind of contagion of this, mili- this machinic technology that's often nano-based, it inevitably turns people into mutants or murderers or whatever that, uh, that, tur- that makes violence the end result of whatever that, that interaction is. And so we have a fantasy. He's demonstrating. He, he demonstrates with a lot of comic books that I've never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's demonstrating that basically every time that, or that, that our fantasy of the interaction between humans and technology at this level almost always produces violence and war. Mm-hmm. And death 
in, mm-hmm. in our fantasies themselves that, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, in the, the lab and bench research, right. It's about like making little nano cars, but our popular fantasies of it is always murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's sort of like a, a, a shad, not shadowed over, but sort of to some degree, like papered over through the figure of the superhero, yes. which is like, what if this violence happened with justification? <laughs> right. Or some sort of moral authority. And uh, that's exactly what Milburn is pointing out here. Right. That that the nano superhero exists to kind of justify whatever nano violence we fantasize about through a positive figure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like next gen or whatever, um, that that those characters allow us to kind of process this nano, the f- fantasy of nano violence and say, oh, yeah, it's OK when like Spider-Man does it in his nano mm-hmm. suit, because that's OK. Right. Um, he, it's really funny when he runs through all of the like Spider-Man things and being like, he, or, or just all the contemporary superhero films. And he's like, it's really weird how, you know, all of these classic things are just being, you know, bitten by a radioactive spider or whatever. It's now a nano spider. Yes. And, you know, Norman Osborn's a nano technician. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, the close readings here are really, really fascinating that it really is a big pattern in this media form that, that nano machines just kind of do the magic of, of the thing. Right. And I mean, this chapter ends with a close reading of an episode of Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, where Jimmy uh, accidentally creates an army of like self-replicating nano pants. Uh, So like all of this close reading of all of these superheroes and then ending with kind of this uh, like parody of the same type of like magical like science, like, you know, magical science thinking uh, that is going on. Like in some ways, right, this this book and I wrote this in my notes, this book was written for shit posters. I didn't talk about it in the last chapter, uh, but when he gets into like the the sonic rings, that's also I posted these on the Range Touch Twitter account. This is also when he gets into the fact that like there are references to Sonic the Hedgehog in contemporary gene therapy science, right? Like there is a yeah. gene named uh, uh, like Sonic Hedgehog uh, that was named in honor of Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> yeah. And it, I, I 100%, you know, again, no, I don't know if this is true or not, but if you told me that like Colin Milburn was a very famous anonymous shit posting Twitter account and we like found that out, I'd be like, Oh yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Because like it, the specificity of his references and his, absolute agnostic relationship to where they come from right mm-hmm. like just everything is culture and everything is ready to go zero percent surprised if you know we found that out he does say too in the next chapter he says something to the effect of like i have per- personally monitored ten thousand crisis forum posts yes <laughs> and, and you get the sense of like all right colin milbert's on the internet mm-hmm. <laughs> like like he's reading the internet but uh but yeah um what what doesn't get commented on in that Jimmy Neutron episode, other than it being mentioned, is that basically Jimmy Neutron's dad tortures a pair of pants, mm-hmm. like like War on Terror style. And yes, there's a lot going on there. I didn't. Uh-huh. I was not aware of this um, this quality of Jimmy Neutron. Speaking of tortured <laughs> pants. Uh, well, of tor- uh, yeah, of uh, tortured uh, metaphors, hey, <laughs> tortured transitions. Well, the next the next uh, chapter is have nano suit will travel, um, which carries forward this this idea of one military nanotechnology uh, and two specifically what it means for like 
clothing, uh, uh, things you wear to be nanotech and for those to uh, interface with you on this fantastical nanotech level where you're going to be jumping over 20 foot walls or whatever, uh, specifically through the video game Crisis from 2007. Mm hmm. My God, that was so long ago. Um, so if you uh, do not remember, because uh, I don't know, do people talk about Crisis still? I think is it's that, it's it's like its own meme now of like can it? it run Crisis Two, yeah. It I, is. Like I, I say, still see it every now and again. Okay, that's what I was wondering because I was like, you know, like as as this chapter kind of points out, there was a point in time where if you were on the internet and in kind of a gaming space, people were talking about Crisis constantly, and this chapter made me think like, when was the last time I heard anyone talk about this series? Anyway, if for some reason you don't know what Crisis is, it's by Crytek, uh, the people who made Far Cry. Um, and it is, it was when it was released, right. And, and continued to be for, I think there are three of them, um, mm -hmm. a, a sort of famously resource intensive game, uh, a first person shooter where you are a, a soldier who is given like this cutting edge nano suit in the not too distant future. And so you're doing your, you know, open world FPS, uh, a far cry style play bopping around an island, shooting people and so on. Uh, but your, your nano suit allows you to like get little buffs, right. Or do cool things within a limited amount of time. Um, and all of this is just lushly, uh, and extensively represented through, through cutting edge uh, uh contemporary graphics and mm -hmm. the game becomes famous as as a resource hog 100 percent, right the the thing about it so so this chapter kind of operates on two levels right like the first thing that he he runs through is like that what what it what it gets talked about is programmable warfare so like mm -hmm. this fantasy of the nano suit that would allow you to micromanage the battlefield and micromanage soldiers like across the board Really weird for me. I recently played through Metal Gear Solid 4 again, and this is exactly like everything that Colin Milburn is talking about is, is made text in that game of like all their senses are shared, all these different things. So, um, you know, th that's this kind of, he's reading this military fantasy of what would it mean to have nano warriors with, with suits on that would be able to heal better, they would be able to like, you know, know where danger is, it would decrease, um, you know, lethality for uh, American troops in particular, you know, with the implicit um, uh, idea that it would allow uh, soldiers to uh, to uh, defeat other troops, to murder other uh, soldiers better. Um, and so he, he kind of reads this military fantasy here on one side, um, but then does the maneuver that you're talking about here, Michael, of jumping over to if this is how the military understands what's happening with nanosuits and then what gets mediated in crisis, the video game, then what, what does the, the fan culture get out of crisis, the video game? Um, and it also has to do with the suits, but it, but just as interesting. And one gets a sense that the object is kind of driving the bus here that he looked at so much crisis um, forum you know, stuff that he was like, I have to write about this. There's no way that I can't because, mm -hmm. uh, because the messages that he's quoting from, and, and there's so many of them mm -hmm. that on one hand are about, um, how resource intensive crisis can be and how it kind of sets up a hierarchy of, uh, PC gamers, right. That mm -hmm. like your worth is attached to how good your PC is. 
And, you know, that's something we can imagine, you know, is like, you know, the, the kind of phallic nature of it, the over-identification of like manhood and masculinity with it. He talks about how the implied player of crisis on these forums is male, like exclusively mm-hmm. male, um, to, to the point where uh, he's quotes one post where someone is like, well, we should know that it would require a penis, right? And, and Milburn works through with like, you know, he has some notes here about how being male and having a penis are not the same thing. But for the fantasy of this this crisis um, uh, poster, that is true, right? So there's this kind of normative set of assumptions going on. But then he makes the other move here, too, which is the most fascinating one, which is that many people fantasize about being dominated sexually by crisis destroying their computers right yeah that the the idea of crisis starting up on the computer and then like burning it out right like frying your graphics card becomes this kind of like like sadomasochistic fantasy right (laughs) uh that is being reiterated constantly in these forum posts Yes, and using the language of the time, right, I actually don't really want to repeat many of the things that are being here. No. If you can imagine what internet discourse was in 2008, and you can imagine the words that gamers might use for uh, dominating or defeating, uh, you know, there's a kind of a prominent word. Mm-hmm. That's what what is being used here in these these posts. But it, there, there becomes this uh, extremely uh, sexual set of metaphors of, what happens when they interact with this kind of nano game is that the body envelope itself is pleasurably um, being uh, violated. And they're constantly talking about it. Right, which is likened to the the Crisis nano suit, right? Which is mm-hmm. uh, this weird paradoxical Derridian thing that uh, makes you a better soldier, right? It hardens you uh, literally on the outside, right? Uh, like by making you a, a stronger soldier, making you stronger, giving you all these powers. But like mechanically, right, within the fiction, how this works uh, is that it makes the, it renders the body beneath uh, softer, permeable. It opens it up, right? It is, in, it is medical. It is injecting things into the character. Uh, so there's this uh, a strange way in which uh, being sort of uh, uh, like, Having being rendered permeable, right, or porous by technology is both terrifying and thrilling, right? It's both what we're here for, but also something that we have to constantly sort of neurotically joke our way around uh, through. Uh, and I just want to read a couple of quotes. These are not the the worst quotes. They're not going to use any of the language that, that Cameron was referring to. Uh, you can imagine that. But these are just these are some tamer quotes that are also extremely indicative of how this is working. One player explains, quote, The whole basis of Crisis is besting an adversary, and that is something that we with the Y chromosome have excelled at, for better or worse, since the dawn of time. So... That's one forum post. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the other description um, is this is a, uh, a some this is a player describing the nano suit specifically, quote, some gay nano suit. Note of the use of the word gay, not as an insult, but as a descriptive word for the sexual status of the nano suit, which resembles a dude's ballet costume. So this is these are like players themselves looking at how the nano suit is represented in in the game and and like comparing it explicitly to fetish wear. Yes. And they're in their fantasy of fetish wear too, right? Yes, like right. so so you know this is yet another example and I think this is such a fascinating chapter because of this, right? Of 
again, right? It's the Mondo Nano-ness of it, right? It is the cultural imaginary of what nanotech does that then gets folded into this kind of aesthetic game object thing. And then Milburn slowly but surely like pulling out each individual kind of way that people relate to it and how that produces different emotions, affects, ways of understanding the object itself, all this kind of stuff it is fascinatingly weird in, in how uh, interesting they are, uh, you know, how, how this happens. And, um, you know, Milburn explicitly calls it out as a, this weird moment of kind of ambivalent queerness. Um, mm-hmm. It kind of reads, especially very contemporary for this book coming out, the kind of two main threads uh, of queer theory that might speak to it, right? So on one hand, the kind of Lee Edelman side of the question of futurity, of, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, the production of the future at the side of queerness and, and uh, how that perhaps is not a great idea. And then the on the other side, the uh, uh, Munoz kind of maneuver of uh, the the queer utopia. Um, weirdly enough, don't really ever see this show up. I mean, maybe it does. I don't know. But I don't really ever see this get cited in the queer games literature. Um, but uh, might be worth going to and, and worth thinking about here. Um, but uh, I think that's kind of it for this chapter. Yeah. And I mean, the one thing I would add is that uh, it is maybe the chapter that most clearly demonstrates what I said at the be well not the, not at the very beginning but when i said that uh the, the computation of uh or the regime of computation uh and how milburn is not going to dig deep into sort of like the critiques that haley's has nestled into that term um but is more interested in the ways that they open up like weird spaces like aporia or like spaces of ambivalence um and that is exactly what is happening here where uh, as you say this is not a, a liberatory uh uh sort of you know moment for queerness right there this is a language of sort of violence and domination that's being uh utilized by uh a particular sub like a particular demographic right of people um but at the same time milburn is capable of doing this fascinating move where uh even if these guys are not imagining like you know Uh, male-male sexual contact as, like, good, right, as, like, a sort of, like, productive or positive aspect of human identity, it is nevertheless uh, how they are acclimating themselves to the idea of, uh, 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 like, masculine sexual contact, right? Like, that that Mm -hmm. still ends up doing work for them imaginatively, even if it's not, you know, liberatory. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so then the next chapter is called Nanopolitanism. Nano City, here we come. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah, this is this is basically like a big, long overview of a, a couple or like sort of a, a couple of reincarnations of a project to build a, a sort of like designed scientific research uh, facility uh, in India, specifically um, at the 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 pitch deck uses the the language, I think, of, you know, like at the foothills of the of the Himalayas or something mm-hmm. in a um, Greenland or a green space or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Arable yeah, yeah. farmland. Very, very early 2000s. Um, the guy who is uh, uh, sort of spearheading this, um, I don't have his first name written down, but his last name is Batia. Sabir. Uh, Sabir yes. Batia. Sabir Batia. Um, he he uh, says that this is like, he specifically says it is like cloning Silivon, Silicon Valley culture to grow it in India, right? Clone is his term. So his idea is like, uh, what if I took 
kind of the the ideologies and sort of the types of people and the types of institutions you see in Silicon Valley, right? And what if I just sort of like ex, ex, uh, abstracted that into a pattern for building something new from the ground up in a completely different location with this eye to, uh, you know, incorporating it into the local farming community and, and all this stuff. Uh, very much like mid to late 2000s, um, you know, optimistic te technological speculation right like the internet's here uh and uh google and all this stuff is going to make us live the world more smartly or something um <laughs> i want that to be like uh like a someone who's writing lex luthor is like a tech bro and uh -huh. being like the internet is here google or something yeah <laughs> uh, that, that's, <laughs> we will live the world a... more smartly yeah we will live the world more smartly uh, uh jesse eisenberg saying that. <laughs> yeah uh but the, the so you know the the idea then is like mondo nano you look at silicon valley you find all of these little things you're you know you 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 create an imaginary lego set based on what silicon valley is or what you're apprehending it as and then you're like i'm just going to take these things and like reproduce these structure structures somewhere else right uh and so there's this weird thing that ends up happening where and and this is one of my favorite points in the book on the one hand these projects are wildly speculative right the the sort of like the the scope right of the projects that we're discussing is is sort of incredible mm -hmm. um but on the other hand the goal like what they are intended to result in is extremely boring because it's just like oh what if we had another version of this thing that we already had Yes. Yeah. Like what if, what if we had a city that, uh, was, I mean, like, you know, the utopian vision of it is amazing, right? You know, mm -hmm. like what if we, uh, moved the center of the world in some ways, right. And, uh, moved it into Northern India. Um, you know, there, there's something fantastical about it. Right. But as you're mm -hmm. saying, right, it's, it's patterned on something that is extremely boring, mm -hmm. right? Like, like what if we moved a bunch of, uh, the tech industry from one place to another, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, without any kind of rethinking about what that would mean. And, and maybe that's, you know, maybe Sabir Baccio's, uh, actual vision of this is a little bit more complicated than like what the pitch deck says or like what the, the framing is. Um, but we don't know, right? Because it's never going to exist or, or at mm -hmm. least it doesn't seem like it's going to exist. Um, because, uh, what happens is that, that they are looking at the site in Northern India and there's a public-private partnership that's going on here, right? So the state itself is putting some money into it to kind of make this, you know, design city. And lo and behold, the 2008 financial crisis comes and just obliterates it. Um, and, and it's made even worse by the fact that there are all these farmers, right, who obviously don't want to be displaced and don't want to sell their land, who know that – who, who are also part of the speculative project, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, wait a minute. So you're telling me that you're going to come here and build a giant, hyper-rich city full mm -hmm. of the world's wealthiest people? Mm -hmm. Interesting. I wonder what my land is worth yes, no, <laughs> for I that project. This. I love yeah, this because it, they did not think about it. <laughs> well, yeah, or, or you know, they just kind of assume that it would work out, right? There, there's a real kind of like um tech utopia blue skies tech utopianism that never thinks the you know the the conditions on the ground and mm -hmm. this is a very clear example of that right like you know where's your fiber optic cable going to come from kind of question mm -hmm. um but you know uh 
so anyway, yeah. So these people are like, they immediately double their land prices, right? And then mm-hmm. as the project gets more, um, more, more speculative in some ways, right? Because 2008 kind of kills its mo- momentum forward. So it becomes less and less likely that it's going to happen. But everyone is doubling down and hedging over and over again that it might happen. So the prices just keep increasing mm-hmm. <laughs> at the moment of crisis. And so, you know, he calls this, this is on 222, this is in your notes, but he calls it, uh, Milburn calls it terminal speculation. I love that phrase. It's so good. Yeah, where it's like the whole point of the whole project is to, just to imagine that something might happen and the world does not change in any kind of way. Um, and obviously there's a lot of people too. You know, it's not just that, that P- the way that I just phrased it makes it sound like uh, everyone is on board and they're like ready to play the game, but they're just all kind of hedging in some ways. That's not the case too. There are lots of people who are like my grand, you know, my grandparents were born here mm-hmm. and you know, this is their land. Why would I sell this to you? Right? So there are a lot of people who just do not want to be displaced for this fictional city that uh, are preventing it from happening too. So um, there's all that, you know, it's this big kind of thing of like, again, you know, the, the fantasy of, the the nano city and being able to be reproduced out of the conditions of nothing running into the materials of the world right you got to move those atoms around you got to build buildings somewhere and that's actually a lot harder than our fantasies are um so so yeah it's just never going to go away and then he does this reading of bioshock that is interesting but i think is perfunctory to like what's actually happening in this chapter i Mm -hmm. this is probably one of the few places in the book where i was like this could just be cut and we would Mm -hmm. lose nothing here yeah, I mean, I was happy to see Bioshock show up because I think it could be interesting here. But I actually think, yeah, the the other stuff in this chapter, um, I think it just ends up being more interesting. Uh, my favorite, actually, page in the entire book might be in this chapter because it's I don't think it's for this specific uh, nano city, but it's like another one. It's like, what will like the nano city of the future look like? And it's part of some pitch deck uh, from a company. And I think there it the, the idea is like, here is what like Paris might look like. Uh, uh, outfitted with, you know, nanotechnology. And it's his example of terminal speculation of, you know, here is a thing that may come true, but also at the same time, it's going to look basically the exact same. And it it's just the illustration. It looks like it was made with clip art, first of all. <laughs> right. Here's like what Paris of the future looks like. It's made with clip art. It's all contemporary clip art, right? It's like the Eiffel Tower. It's people sitting on little bistro chairs outside of a cafe. uh, And it's literally all present day stuff. But there are like little arrows pointing to little pieces of the image with little pop outs. And it's like, here's the awning over the entrance to the cafe. And the pop out is like, ah, you see this awning? It's got like nano carbon fibers in it, which means that it's a really good awning. You see this guy's pants? It's got some nano carbon fibers in it, which means they're really strong pants. Um, And it's such a great example of like, uh, this massive speculative gesture toward the future that just ends up looking like the exact same damn shit. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because, and, and I, I think this is also too, where, um, uh, William Gibson's bridge trilogy gets, mm-hmm. gets mentioned, right. Uh, because he, he quotes a line from a Gibson novel where, because that, that, that trilogy is about nanotech in some ways. And, um, the, the, basically the, the character says, look, I, want to I want the world to be radically transformed but I do not want my relationship to world to the world to be radically transformed I want my position to the rest of the world to remain unaltered and so this you know nanotech is a way of affording that relationship of 
changing your pants, right? And, ch- and changing the awning, but not changing the fundamental r- relationship between your pants or the awning. But yeah, that's kind of what's going on in this chapter. I think it's really cool. One um, thing yeah, go ahead. that I think we may just want to just briefly mention is that this is maybe the chapter that does get closest to thinking about um, um, race explicitly um, mm-hmm, because yeah. uh, he is ta- like uh, talking about uh, that idea of cloning Silicon Valley and then just transporting it to northern India. Part of the other thing about Batia's pitch deck for this project is that, oh, we're going to like incorporate with the local communities, right? There will be a this is Silicon Valley but with uh, particular Northern Indian uh, concerns somehow folded in. Uh, And to me, it very much evokes um, uh, what Lisa Nakamura was talking about in Cybertypes uh, when she's talking about Silicon Valley culture and kind of this emerging moment of of, uh, technological globalization or mediation where uh, simultaneously everything is being brought closer together, right? Being connected and rendered kind of symmetrical by these uh, uh, technologies. Um, and the the response is to neurotically insist that all the old uh, ethnic and national stereotypes are somehow still true, right? That uh, the, the leveling gesture of technology is not in fact a, a kind of total leveling, uh, that they're still going to be like recognizable, stable cultural differences that allow us to uh, uh, create the same old identities, right? Which is more mm-hmm. to the point of the exact dynamic we've just been describing. Yeah, uh, Wendy Chun actually actually gets quoted here uh, on uh, high-tech Orientalism, which uh, seems close to techno-Orientalism, although it's not exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So so if you're tracking these terms kind of across these different texts, um, slightly different angle for it, because it's a high-tech Orientalism is not just that, uh, you know, Asian-ness is the future, right, which is the Mm -hmm. techno-Orientalist thing. It's that... Um, the high tech industry itself is figured as having, uh, uh, you know, the qualities of the Orient in that regard, mm-hmm. um, that, that it is an alien phenomenon, right? So it's actually kind of like the flip side of it. You know, it, unfortunately, it seems like the relationship between uh, tech and the Orient is, it flows both ways in that regard, mm-hmm. um, you know, unfortunately. But uh, My Little Avatar? Mm-hmm. The final chapter, easily the weirdest chapter. Easily, yeah. And this is the one I, I referred to earlier as the kind of um, Professor Challenger, if you're familiar with that from A Thousand Plateaus. This is not exactly how that chapter is written. That that chapter for Deleuze and Guattari is uh, written as a kind of um, narrative of a lecture given by this character, Professor Challenger, who slowly turns into a like a, a lobster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, it's a very kind of teratological moment, but, um, this is set up as a kind of story that Colin Milburn is narrating after the fact about someone he meets in second life named Perky Pat. Mm-hmm. Do you know who, do you get the Perky Pat reference? I do. Yeah. Do you want to talk yeah. about that really quick before we get into it? Well, uh, Perky Pat is, is the name of this character. And to be clear, this is not a thing that uh, Milburn flags or talks about. No. Uh, so Perky Pat shows up, this character that he meets in Second Life. Uh, Perky Pat is a character from the work of science fiction writer Philip K. Dick. Um, specifically, uh, uh, she maybe shows up in other things, but um, specifically the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, right? Yeah, I couldn't remember. I didn't, and I also didn't look it up. I can't. Re- I I know that it's in Three Stigmata, but also might show up in Valis too. I think mm-hmm. I'm not a hundred percent sure. 
yeah, like Perky Pat. So the Perky Pat in in uh, uh, PKD's work is like, uh, <laughs> what if uh, virtual reality was about <laughs> taking drugs? Okay. Uh, and when you took your virtual reality drugs, um, you manifested a kind of like weird little spirit guide or psychopomp who was a corporate mascot. Uh, like what if, what if Disney, right? What if Disney released some sort of weird VR, VR drug technology that when you took it, uh, suddenly in, in your living room, uh, Mickey Mouse was standing there and Mickey Mouse was like, Hey there, I'm Mickey Mouse. And like, I'm here to kind of like, uh, be your little like assistant as you have your, uh, incredible drug induced VR experience or something like that. It's even, it is one level worse than that because (laughs) it's exactly like that happens, right? What if you, what if you take a hallucinogenic drug and, uh, Mickey Mouse shows up in your living room. Mm-hmm. But in order to get Mickey Mouse to show up, you would have to buy a Mickey Mouse playset. You'd have to buy uh-huh. like a Lego set, right? Or like a Barbie dream house, uh-huh. right? In order to get that kind of Mickey Mouse experience. So like, right. it's not even just that you're summoning up like uh, some sort of like, uh, you know, weed clippy here. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, um, you know, uh, who is Mickey Mouse. It's that you have to like purchase these like, they're called like play. I can't. There's a really cool word for them, and I'm I'm blanking on the word for it. But um, they're like little play sets, Lego sets essentially. And you would like do it, and then Perky Pat's like the star of all of them. And mm-hmm. so you always want the newest one. It's kind of like a TV show. I think actually that must be for Philip K. Dick the kind of extrapolation he's doing there, right? Like, mm-hmm. what if TV were combined with drugs? Like, so yes. to get the next episode, you would have to buy this kind of playset. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's where it comes from. So, so Perky Pat, like in the Philip K. Dick imaginary is a fictional character that you go and interact with. And to, in some cases you are Perky Pat, right? Like in the Mm -hmm. Philip K. Dick novel, like you're, you are, it's not just that it's an, an additional figure, right? Who you interact with, you feel like you're experiencing the life of Perky Pat, it's been a long time since I've read these. It's been 10 years since I've read these novels. But uh, anyway, you can see how that interacts with Second Life, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, this is Perky Pad is a character that someone is logging into Second Life and playing as. So mm-hmm. anyway, Colin Milburn says, uh, hey, I was at this lecture with, quote, our pal Kim Stanley Robinson, which mm-hmm. is very funny to me. Um, pal. Just our pal Kim Stanley Robinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Perky, anyway, so KSR makes this, uh, reference to Colin Milburn and Colin Milburn says, he's like getting up and ready to respond. And then everyone talks over him. So mm-hmm. he gets a message from Perky Pat and Perky Pat says, Hey, uh, you had some cool ideas that Kim Stanley Robinson referenced. Um, tell me all about them. And so what begins here is a narrative of basically conversation between Perky Pat and, mm-hmm. uh, Colin Milburn about what they do and how they think about the world. And it is Mm -hmm. the weirdest, most like genre jumping his history of science and technology studies Mm -hmm. thing going on. Theory fiction. Yeah. Theory. Yeah. Very much in the, in the kind of world of theory fiction, uh, kind of, kind of thing. And basically the setup is that Perky Pat lives in Boston Mm -hmm. and she is a, um, like a citizen scientist, like biohacker. Mm hmm. And so she hangs out on Second Life to, like, think about protein folding and, like, all of this different stuff. 
um, and solving like kind of molecular issues at big scales so she can see how it works in order to do whatever biohacking stuff she's doing. You know, we don't have mm-hmm. really any sense of who Perky Pat is in the real world. Right, right. Like she like the the, the bio we get uh, from her is like part of a hack lab in Boston, which is just like, yeah, right. If you go into Cambridge, like in around MIT, like there are people who are doing this work, right? There are little hack labs and so on. Um, uh, and yeah, she says, would you like to see my molecules? Mm-hmm. And uh, I wrote my note in my notes that I wouldn't know what to do if someone asked me that. <laughs> Anything could happen. Yeah. Um, uh, but the the sort of like the the framing here, right? If this is a story, right, is that becomes this kind of back and forth between uh, uh, Milburn saying, "Well, here's the research I've been doing," or sort of here are the ideas that I've had, and they start out uh, with a discussion of avatars, right, and not just online avatars, not just digital or game avatars, but the the lineage and genealogy of the very concept of the avatar and where that comes from. Uh, and we move through a whole bunch of different sort of like complementary figures to this. We go from like the, the, we, there's like the golem is one of them, right? Uh, the wizard is another, and they all form these, uh, kind of, uh, strange marginal or liminal figures, uh, that exist in fiction, exist kind of in, in sort of this, this aesthetic realm, right? They're popular culture figures. Uh, they're in science fiction stories. They're in not just, you know, they're in, they're like, they have old cultural traditions. They have religious resonances and at the same time, very popular, very contemporary resonances. And then weirdly enough, also seem to be echoing in legitimate like scientific production, right? There are like the figure of the wizard shows up as a way of describing uh, what Thomas Edison is doing when he is doing his thing, right? There seems to be at that time, right? Uh, like for, for people who are trying to uh, grapple with or understand what is it that Edison does with his science? What are sort of the, the consequences of his research and his in, his invention? Um, the the figure that makes him legible to people is that of the wizard. Yes. Right. Uh, uh, and so like the avatar, right, that is really fascinating because uh, we, we dive back into like, you know, deep uh, uh, Hindu like mythology and religion and uh, thinking about like how in that instance, uh, the avatar is, is a literal kind of descent or embodiment of the god into the world. Uh, mm-hmm. like a, a, a making like the, it is, uh, they sort of get into kind of like the etymology, right. And sort of like, what are the resonances of, of the language here? Um, and it's this sense of like, when a God takes on the form of an avatar, they are making themselves small. They are getting smaller in some way to interact with the mortal world, which is something that they normally perceive as being outside of it, right? They shrink themselves down and then do stuff and then, you know, reascend to, to the heavens or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, uh, linking that to the second life avatar. Yes. Right. And so this is, this is basically if you've been, uh, listening to this episode and noticing all of like the weird and wild connections that, uh, Milburn has been making, uh, this chapter is the one where he kind of makes his weirdest ones. This is also like when he talks about Madame Blavatsky, right? Who he points out has uh, Madame Blavatsky, if you don't know, is a, a kind of spiritualist theosophist uh, around uh, the beginning of the 20th century. Um, 
a very uh sort of of a generation uh with like Crowley, right? Alistair Crowley and kind of uh this the the birth of kind of contemporary chaos magic and and things like that. Um and he looks to Blavatsky and uh sort of outlines for Perky Pat uh you know here is how Madame Blavatsky talks about the world as a nanotechnician, right? Because she herself, under, because of like her sort of uh, uh, theories about the world and how it works in terms of like both being material and spiritual, uh, matter is, uh, takes on forms because of psychic energy, right? Because of uh, like the minds of people or other entities working on the world and that causes the world to assemble into particular forms. And uh, Perky Pat, as you might expect, is the, the sort of, Perky Pat asks the questions that a reader presumably has been asking throughout this entire thing, which is kind of like, I don't know, that seems a little bit like a stretch, right? That seems a little weird. Could you tell me more about that? Um, and then Milburn will be like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll tell you more. And, uh, you know, does something, you know, does a more little bit more song and dance. It becomes a little bit more convincing. Um, but then as this story progresses, uh, Milburn just keeps talking and talking and talking. And it's like very clear that Perky Pat is responding less and less. Uh, <laughs> and um, if it were not sort of... Uh, a question you had wondered by now you would be wondering like is this person real right this other person because he is like transcribing emails <laughs> where he's explaining his ideas to this other person and they are long like i am an academic right i have met other academics we exchange emails um but even I would not know what to do if another academic sent me an email as long as some of the ones that milburn is sending uh but this is all part of the game, of course, because Perky Pat uh, in, in Dick's novel is not so much an actual person uh, as she is a kind of tool, right? A, mm -hmm. a kind of way for you to work through uh, your virtual reality playset, right? She's kind of like a grip that the user has um, for uh, uh, running through the, the VR playset. Uh, and I think, you know, we are supposed to understand that that's what Perky Pat is here, too, right? This is Milburn talking to himself, uh, trying to work out some of his weirder ideas. Yeah, and at the end, we basically get uh, Perky Pat died on the way back to her home planet. <laughs> yeah, she, she stops responding to his emails and then finally responds one last time on April 1st. Mm -hmm. To say, like, sorry, I haven't been talkative. There was a disaster on my home planet, and I have to go there. Yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> 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 Which is very good. But yeah, so, you know, uh, basically, you know, my, I mean, my assumption is this is all fiction, right? But right. it's a very interesting and fun fiction, I think. Right, right, right. No, maybe, and that's maybe it's real. Maybe. I mean, who can know the 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 other thing that makes you ask questions is that he gives her email address. <laughs> so, like, again, if I were an academic, I would not just be like throwing out people's email addresses in my book. So I think we are intended to understand this, especially because uh, as as a figure that shows up here, we haven't talked about it a lot, but the figure of the puppet. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is the, and not as just like a sort of the puppet as a deceitful thing, right? A thing that you use to distract someone with while you're actually doing something else. Uh, but the <laughs> way that the puppet like mediates agency and allows it to sort of turn back on itself, 
um, for kind of this kind of uh, uh, clarifying discussion that ends up happening in this chapter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we have sort of the conclusion, which is a reading of Space Kim. Yeah, uh, I'm good. (laughs) I don't need to think about Space Kim. Yeah. Um, I, I did have another experience, though. This is on 294. <clears throat> Play is an approach, if not a reaction, to the bewildering complexity of technoculture in a time of rapid globalization, Snake. <laughs> Through play, we navigate the flows of data, the torturous networks of knowledge and information that confront us every day without blowing our minds. That was another. This is just Colin yeah. Milburn himself at this point, but uh-huh. I, I also had. When I was reading that, I was like, this is some real Metal Gear Solid shit. <laughs> like. Uh, the torturous networks of knowledge and information that confront us every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, I think, you know, Milburn's right here. I mean, I think that, you know, this is something that we talked about extensively in that James Hans episode, right? That the reality is, is that like the play instinct, whatever that is, or play is production in a kind of metaphysical sense, that it, it's the mechanism through which capitalism has latched onto and demands us to interact with the world in that mode. The, the inability to play is the inability to like get by in some ways at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I do like how we're kind of building out an extended, like, Game Studies Metal Gear Solid universe here, right? Mm-hmm. We, we've got Otacon showing up a lot here, but uh, eventually, of course, he's going to have to fight uh, uh, Calois and <laughs> yes. his hatred of clowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, great, great stuff. Uh, I tried to want- get I tried to get a Colonel Campbell at one point for something. I forget what which episode it was, but I couldn't find anyone who can do Colonel Campbell. <laughs> so if you can do a Colonel Campbell uh, impression from Metal Gear Solid, uh, send me a DM on Twitter. I might have something <laughs> for you in the future. I would just like to have that in my back pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and so I mean that's sort of the 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 book. Uh, it ends with, as you said, a, a, a revisitation very briefly of Derrida. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that. Not, not in particular, but it does kind of set the the tone here at the ending of, uh, I believe this is, uh, I, let me pull it out real quick to make sure, but I believe this quotation is from Structure, Sign, and Play, the kind of big famous or one of the big famous kind of often taught, um, uh, yeah, it is, um, but often taught Derrida essays. Um, and, um, you know, it's, gosh, uh, I don't know, one-fifth of the... No, maybe not that much, but one-tenth of the final thing here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, oh, there's also, you know, if people are interested, we didn't mention this, at the end of the last chapter, there was a long reading of Xenogears. Um, Xenogears does not show up that often in game studies. <laughs> so when it shows up, you want, you, you want to say something about it. But, um, yeah, I mean, the the kind of vibe here is that rather than go to something like Kalwa for Ludus versus Paideia, um uh, uh, Milburn is looking to Derrida to kind of think about structure versus free play here and the kind of uh, wax and wane wax and wane relationship that happens because you know instead in for Derrida right um, or well for Kawa Ludus and Paideia they are uh, plotted on a spectrum and they're opposed to one another right you can't have both for Derrida mm-hmm. you can have both at one time mm-hmm. you can have highly um, structured life and you can have absolute free play that exists within that, right? Because objects produce both things, right? Mm-hmm. And our relations to the world produce both things. They are not antithetical. They are composite. And so, you know, Milburn in some ways at the very end is kind of giving you the through line for the whole rest of the book, which is why I call it, called it very Deridian, because all of these objects do both things at one time, right? Mm-hmm. They both provide the Mondo Nano as a, as a concept, right? 
is a word for how our thought and our experience about the world around nanotechnology is highly structured by the aesthetic relations to we have to the world around us, but also uh, incredibly open to reinterpretation and rearticulation constantly. And all these chapters are different instances where that thing is happening, right? Where structure is at the same time producing weird results of radical action, you know, mm-hmm. that, that are that's just kind of going, right? It's kind of just occurring. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I think the crisis forum posts are really indicative of that, right? Like, I just don't think, if you asked me to, like, write out a list of things I thought would be happening around crisis, I don't think I would have gotten there in the top ten, for sure. Yeah. Um, but, and yet, it's happening, right? And it's afforded in weird and interesting ways. So, uh, that's the book. Michael, what'd you think about it? Would you read uh, it I again? Think, I'm going to read this again. I'm going to cite this thing. I am going to... This is going to be a thing that I'm probably going to cite multiple times on the Homestuck show, right? Just <gasps> another additional plug in the end. But like the 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 things that are at work here are things that I think uh, can be very usefully applied to, to that narrative. So. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's going to uh, not just help the Homestuck podcast, but also my own research. Uh, Cameron, what are we reading next time? Are we? Are, are, is this where we're reading uh, Christopher Patterson's Open World Empire? Yep, that's the next oh. one. Okay, I couldn't remember. I wanted to make sure. Yeah. Um. So uh, really excited. I haven't read it yet. I've read pieces of it, but I have not read it cover to cover yet. So I'm excited to do it. Um. I. Uh, it's a, another big weird one. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning that it's a, a book that's covering a lot of different territories at a lot of different time. And I'm using the word territory on purpose. Um, it's, it's kind of about the, um, global cultures around Asian-ness as it is figured in games. Interesting. Um, okay. but that happens in a bajillion different ways. And, um, uh, Patterson is kind of talking about how a lot of those ideas are just baked into things where you might not expect to see it. So, um, uh, I, I'm excited to read it cover to cover to kind of get a, a sense of the whole schedule and, um, Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about checking it out. Well, if you want to support us and everything that we do here on Game Study Study Buddies, you can check us out at twitter.com slash range touch. Uh, you can also find our YouTube videos at youtube.com slash range touch. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash range touch. Giving us even just a dollar there is going to get you. Uh, well, it's going to get you closer to that Homestuck show that I keep mentioning. Uh, mm-hmm. but giving us $3 will get you access to our notes for this show, uh, in case you wanted to see, uh, our huge archive of uh, things we have written uh, for this. Um, and I don't, $5 will get you like the Just King Things bonus episodes, uh, uh, among other things. Mm-hmm. It's like good stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we have all sorts of content, really. Uh, you, you, get a, you get a lot uh, if you support us on Patreon. You get a lot for $5, I'll tell mm-hmm. you that. Okay, well, we'll be back in one month um with uh open world empire um and uh yeah if you uh, and also if you enjoy this show give it a good old share mm-hmm. tweet about it mm-hmm. you know help us out mm-hmm. we Much we don't do our own advertisements Who except for our advertisements we are our own advertisements oh, we live our truths 
we hire Pierce Bronson to advertise for it. He's just <laughs> terrible at the job. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm constantly trying to get on the phone with Pierce Brosnan's personal assistant. And yeah. I'm like, why Why hasn't he tweeted about us? Why has he, why, he needs to link to us? And uh, the PA's like, sorry, sorry, sorry. He's really busy filming Mamma Mia 4. I'm going to um, be honest with you. I oh, Look, I talked to Pierce Brosnan's personal assistant the other day. And I'm like 85% sure it's just Pierce Brosnan doing a voice. Yeah. It sounds a lot yeah. like James Bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, but well, I don't know until until uh, uh, Pierce or his uh, James Bondian assistant comes around for us. Uh, we we rely on uh, listeners like you to to spread the good word and let everyone know that if they have questions about the wide and wacky world of academic game studies, they should come see us. Remember, folks, uh, from the very very big to the very very small. The social is predicated on its exclusions. <laughs> <laughs>